Lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds has come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Throws across his body, and he got him! Looking away, McCann around third, throw from the outfield is up the line, inside the park home run! He gone! And he makes the catch up against the wall. And he's going to watch it fly. Strike three called. He got him on strikes. Welcome to the Voice of the Turtle, a podcast feature of the Bless You Boys website. That's SB Nation's Detroit Tigers blog. You can find us online at blessyouboys.com, on Twitter at blessyouboys, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash byb.tigers. I'm your host, Hook Slide, along with my partner, Rob Rojacki. And Rob, this is our last podcast for November. The next time we talk, we are on the cusp of the winter meetings. That's exciting. Isn't it, though? I mean, it's crazy to me that we've come this far and November's almost gone. See, but at the same time, there's probably going to be absolutely nothing happening between now and next week because teams always don't do anything during Thanksgiving. That's true. That's that's very, very true. So we're going to have to talk about, I don't know, the best thanksgiving sides that we ate or something i could go all day so we're, we're good there <laughs> we're recording this on tuesday night so thanksgiving is all of uh, 24 hours away so yeah better plan on picking out now and then we'll have something interesting to talk about come next week so look at it that way there is one podcast left after this one between uh, now and the winter meetings that's it's crazy it's just crazy Anyway, uh, don't put that Thanksgiving turkey in the oven just yet. We've got some pre-feast appetizers for you on this show. Al Avila is making trades. An old friend is coming back home. The Marlins are a laugh a minute. The Tigers may or may not be done rearranging the outfield. We've got listener questions as usual and some Thanksgiving dinner topics. And we'll talk about whether Brad Osmus can embrace sabermetrics in 2016. But first... We round the bases. The Tigers are doing off-season things, and Al Avila is the anti-Dombrowski. We'll tell you what that means when we get back. 210-pound righty delivers as a fly ball left field. This one's deep. This one's got a chance, and this ball is gone! A home run! Ian Kinsler delivers the walk-off! Number six for Ian. He rounds third. Heads into the mob scene at home. And the Tigers take the series from KC. A walk-off home run from Kinsler, 8-6. And here we go. Let's kick the show off with a rounding the bases segment. Al Avila turns out to be the anti-Dombrowski. We'll talk a little bit about that in a second. Uh, Rob, they finally did something. I have to give you props uh, because when we concluded last week's show, I asked you to predict whether they would do anything uh, between now and the winter meetings, and you said they're going to get a reliever. Lo and behold. Well, I thought they would sign someone, and I thought it would be, you know, kind of like a fairly underwhelming thing. So, you know, trading for a proven closer and one who's been very good for, you know, the better part of a decade now was kind of a nice surprise. Yeah, and unless you've been living under a rock for the last week, you already know what we're talking about. The Tigers acquired K-Rod, Francisco Rodriguez from the Milwaukee Brewers in exchange for Javier Betancourt. Uh, I, I, I like that trade. I like that trade a lot. 
I do too. Um, Betancourt was a, you know, kind of a nice little prospect they had sitting, and I believe he played for Lakeland this year at Advanced Day Ball. Um, you know, was putting up some decent numbers and, you know, fairly young for his level, but at the same time, isn't the most athletic guy and doesn't have the highest ceiling. So, you know, you're kind of trading a guy who might become, you know, like a utility guy for, you know, a good reliever now and one that's, you know, got a fairly team-friendly contract too. Yeah, I watched uh, Javier Betancourt play when he was at West Michigan. I want to say it wasn't, maybe it might have been 2014. I think it was when I watched him uh, play the most of his games. I mean, decent enough prospect, but not someone that's going to knock your socks off. It certainly was not a, uh, you know, a Dave Dombrowski-esque kind of trade where we gave up some top talent to get this proven closer. It's uh, it's like we got this uh, proven closer at a discount. Yeah, they really did. Um, you know, you have K-Rod under contract for... 2015 with the team option for 2016 and i know patrick o'kennedy has kind of broken down this whole convoluted uh tax scenario where you know if they decline the option it's worth more and all that whatnot um but i guess the kind of the x's and o's of it is that they have k-rod for a year and if he pitches well like he has for you know the last five or six years he'll be back for a second season at i think only like six and a half million dollars which you know based on some of the numbers that you know some of these other guys i know they offered joaquin soria a contract and he wanted a lot more than that um you know that six and a half million is looking pretty good right now and it's such the anti-dombrowski move we were talking last week about how dave dombrowski went out and got proven closer craig kimbrell but he sold off quite a few was it like four different prospects uh, in the process. And that to me is just, that's such a cliche Dombrowski move to do. Uh, I was very pleased to see that Alavila could get someone whose numbers in many cases matched or bettered Craig Kimbrell for far, far less. Yeah. I saw you on Twitter posting some of those stats between Kimbrell and K-Rod and uh, you know, you're looking at K-Rod's numbers and he had one of his better years last year, right. but you're also talking about a career worst season for Craig Kimbrell. So uh, I think Dombrowski definitely got the better closer of the two in the long run. Uh, but at the same time, I think, you know, if anything, Betancourt would probably still be the worst prospect in that other trade had he been playing in the Red Sox systems. So I think the Tigers did a lot, you know, they got a lot more value out of the steal than the Red Sox did. And the Brewers are also going to collect from the Tigers a player to be named later. Uh, that's that's a term that I think maybe confuses some people. I was certainly confused by it. I'm thinking, really, you sold off a player that doesn't even have a name yet? I mean, how how good could he be? Well, <laughs> I meant to do a little bit more research on this over the weekend, but then football happened and I downed one too many beers. Um, <laughs> so uh, what I do know is that the player has to be named within the, the next six months or right. within six months of the trade um, and that it I don't believe it can be anyone currently on the 40 man roster. Um, right. And so, you know, anyone you know, really good there is probably not going to be named. I think if it were anyone, you know, worth losing at this, at during the time of the trade, they would have been named during the time of the trade. So it may kind of be, you know, that brewers may have their pick of X, Y, and Z prospects, and they may be, you know, relievers or, uh, you know, other guys that aren't necessarily going to have a huge impact. And the brewers may get to pick, you know, which guy they want uh, going down the roads. So, you know, they may get a little bit of time to kind of assess performance in 2015 or in 2016 before they kind of make the final call on who exactly they want on the roster. So, again, it, it just kind of underscores the fact that the Tigers really did not give up a whole lot in order to get, uh, you know, who is really a decent closing pitcher for many years. Uh, we were looking at some of the uh, 
pitch selection stats uh, on stats I should say on, on K-Rod and I was finding it interesting that uh, he, he's been very good it seems in the last couple of years at adjusting his pitch selection uh, based on what's working and what's not his changeup usage has shot way up over the last couple of years and it seems to be one of his better pitches does that speak to you of something that's sustainable See, I'm almost a little bit worried about that. Um, you know, he's using his changeup, I want to say, almost half the time, right. uh, you know, over the last year or so. Um, and if he continues to throw it even more, I mean, yes, it was one of the best pitches in baseball last season. But when you're throwing the changeup more than the fastball, is it even really still a changeup anymore? <laughs> right. um, so, you know, just kind of that, that whole the definition conundrum there. Um and if you're trying to keep hitters off of it, but that's kind of your primary pitch, it's tough to. I, I I'd like to think that it's tough to, you know, tough to kind of keep hitters away from you know sitting on that changeup going forward. Um, you know, if he can almost start to work backwards there and use the changeup as his primary pitch, and then you know blow the fastball by an unsuspecting hitter, that's another way that he can kind of, you know, outwit the hitters that he's facing again. And you know, based on his career results so far, he's had pretty good success with that. Yeah, and I don't have the the figures right in front of me but if i recall from the last uh two three years worth of data it's just it's not so much that he's landed on the changeup that i'm excited about it's the fact that he's adjusted in every single one of those years where like maybe say the 2013 i think it was his fastball was one of his primary pitches but it was starting to get hit around a little bit so the next year he switched over to the slider for and that and that ended up being a pretty good pitch for him until it wasn't uh and then he adjusted again and switched over to the changeup so i mean that to me is you know it's a good sign if the guy can understand I'm not going to just keep throwing the same darn pitches over and over again uh, if it's not working he's got some some room to move well I also like that he's really kind of adjusted over the course of his career uh, when he came up you know early on with the Angels and they had their big run uh, to the postseason to the World Series I think it was in 2002 um, he was primarily like a fastball slider guy he was throwing in the mid 90s he had that wicked slider that you know earned him the nickname K-Rod <laughs> one that I actually wondered if people still called him which apparently they do um, and now he's kind of turned into you know for a while he was throwing a fastball curveball type thing and almost uh, using his two seamer a little bit more to generate some ground balls and now he's really kind of started to rely on this changeup that has you know kind of been a pitch that he's that has evolved over the course of his career um, so he's one that, you know, you could say he's aged very gracefully and that he doesn't still have the mid-90s fastball, but he's uh, been able to figure out a way to get hitters out even without that, you know, plus velocity. You know, and I'm not buying the the hyped up concerns that I've seen kind of expressed in places, you know, the Tigers fan base that we just got the next Joe Nathan uh, in terms of, hey, you just got another retread pitcher, you got an aging closer how well has that worked out in the past i think people have to remember that he's turning 34 i think in january uh that's a far cry from joe nathan who was turning 39 when the tigers picked him up it is and with nathan there was kind of already a red flag sitting there and that he had you know i think his walk rate had gone up while he was with the rangers and his home run rate was super super low um so you know there was Kind of, I think someone, you know, some people had pointed that out even when Nathan was signed, that you know this might not be the best thing because he's losing velocity. He got you know kind of lucky on home runs the year before. Um, whereas K Rod, there aren't necessarily those red flags. Uh, you know, he he allowed a .86 WHIP last year, uh, and you know his walk rate was definitely lower 
than career norms for him. Um, but, you know, that may be kind of just another part of the evolution of Francisco Rodriguez in that he's throwing more strikes. He's, you know, not necessarily having to use that plus velocity, so he's able to command the ball a little bit better. Uh, his walk rate has definitely trended downward over the course of his career. It's just that, you know, 2015, he was at a career low. So it'll be interesting to see exactly how he rebounds from that. But, you know, based on the last few years, things are looking pretty good. Any concerns with him coming over from the National League to the American League and what kind of tends to happen with pitchers? The American League has a little bit stronger offense, so you got to deal with the DH. You don't get to pitch to the pitcher every ninth batter. Uh, and we've seen a couple cases you know, where, where the numbers tend to either go down if the pitcher goes into the National League. We saw that with uh, uh, Joaquin Soria um, you know, when he was traded to the Pittsburgh Pirates. Of course, that could just be Ray Searage at work. Um, but the numbers do uh, tend to trend either up or down, depending on whether the pitcher is going between the American League or the National League. Do you expect to see any kind of real hit on, on K-Rod's numbers now that he's coming to the American League? I don't necessarily think that he'll trend downward because it's the national, because he's moving from the National League to the American League. Uh, for one, I think relievers don't necessarily see the pitcher in the lineup. You know, uh, managers by that point are often using pinch hitters in key situations. And if anything, you know, trying to tailor their lineup more towards that reliever. And uh, in, in the, the National League, they even may even have more bench options to work with. Um, so I think that, you know, with all these factors in there, it's probably going to be a wash. Um, and if anything, you have a bunch of hitters in the American League that haven't seen a lot of Francisco Rodriguez recently. Uh, the last time he pitched in the American League was 2008. So you're looking at, you know, the better part of a decade where he's been away from a lot of these hitters here. And, you know, they might not necessarily be, you know, as ready to face this guy as, you know, some of the teams in the National League Central that have seen him for the last four years. Well, it remains to be seen, and we will find out if uh, if indeed Dave Dombrowski took the bullpen curse with him to Boston, or if it really is something that just sits uh, in the Tigers' bullpen itself. And if K-Rod falls apart, then I guess we'll know for sure, because there doesn't seem to be any indication that, that he should be anything but a good closer for the Tigers going forward in 2016. Elsewhere, uh, the Tigers executed another trade. Uh, Rob, we are now without Ian Kroll, and in exchange for Ian Kroll and Gabe Spire, They've gone to the uh, Atlanta Braves in exchange for Cameron Mabin. Yeah, that that Cameron Mabin. I mean, do you want a moment of silence for Ian Kroll at all? Um, hold on. That's that's enough right there. Okay. Okay. Good. We're good. Uh, addition by subtraction, right? Yeah. Um, well, I, I do kind of like that part of the trade. Um, you know, getting rid of Kroll out of the bullpen is, you know, even in when he was with the Nationals and actually pitching well, before the Tigers traded for him, you know, he was still allowing, you know, some god-awful numbers against right-handed hitters, and I just don't necessarily see how that is ever going to change. Um, you know, watch the Braves this next year turn him into a dominant reliever. Of but, course. Um, you know, the Braves have done that with a pitcher or two throughout their history, especially former Tigers pitchers. Um, so <laughs> I, I had this to throw is, that in this there. This is John Smoltz redux, <laughs> isn't it? I, I had to. Um you know, no, I I don't think the Tigers gave up much here either. Um, Gabe Spire is a young arm that I believe pitched for West, West Michigan last year. He sure um, did. But he's still only 19 or 20 or something like that and was used as a reliever. Um, I've seen conflicting, conflicting reports on him in that some people have said, you know, he's only a reliever at this age. That's not really, you know, going to be much. And then others have said that he had Tommy John surgery in September 2013. So this was his first full season back and that the Tigers used him as a reliever to limit his innings. So it'll be interesting to see. And then even if the Braves do move him to the rotation, that's not necessarily 
the same plan as what the Tigers would have had. So we don't really know exactly what his future would have been in this organization. Um, but with a guy that far away from the major leagues, uh, and you know, I, I just don't necessarily see any reason why we should be upset about losing him for, you know, a guy who's going to see significant playing time in the outfield. Yeah, and just to chime in a bit on Gabe Spire, he did pitch at West Michigan this year. I got to see him throw, I don't know, maybe five, six games. Uh, it seems like they didn't really go to him many times. Of course, they had kind of a stacked bullpen as it was uh, with Joe Jimenez out there. And uh, uh, what was his name? I think uh, Gabe Smith was his name. Another side-arming righty that they used quite a bit. But when I did see Spire out there, uh, I, I don't know how what I would compare him to, except he was sort of the Alex Wilson, I guess, of of the white caps. I mean, nothing that really stood out that you went, Oh wow. Look at that 12, six curveball, or, you know, wow. He's throwing fastballs in the upper nineties all the time. Nothing like that, but he was consistently re- you know, reliable and that he just, he got batters out. He had some swing and miss pitches. He got some weak contact, uh, but it, it was just nothing that, that I would say, Oh man, really? They gave up Gabe Spire. So I don't think they lost a whole lot in that. Um, the interesting thing to me, though, now that we're talking about it, with the trade of Ian Kroll, uh, that that closes the book on the Doug Fister trade. All of the the players that they acquired in that trade are, have now moved on. It was still a horrible trade. <laughs> look, look what we got for all of that. I, I mean, you can sort of like follow the spider tendrils out and say, yeah, that eventually turned into, you know, this player and that player and that player. But as far as the original acquisition, Robbie Ray is gone. Uh, Steve Lombardozzi obviously gone, and now Ian Kroll gone. So can we finally stop complaining about the trade? Let's hope Shane Green does something. That's all I'll say. <laughs> all right. Well, I mean, looks looks good. So I have a lot of faith in Shane Green. I'll I'll put that on the books now. As far as the actual acquisition of Cameron Mabin, uh, I what was your first reaction when that when that came through? It was you know kind of puzzling. Um, but at the same time, I liked the deal. Um, you know, it, I thought, I, you know, at first I thought of Mabin as kind of Rajay Davis's replacement. You know, he's a fast outfielder who plays good defense, a former center fielder who, you know, could play some center, could play some left. And, you know, at first I thought that he would be a guy that would hit well against lefties. Um, turns out, as we look at his numbers, he's not really the kind of lefty matcher that Rajay Davis was. Yeah, uh, honestly, I, I I was about three beers deep when the text came through or the the notification from the MLB Trade Rumors app that said you know Tigers have traded for Cameron Mabin, and it took me a few minutes of reading and rereading that over and over just just the headline. Wait, wait, wait! wait. This was at like four o'clock on a Friday. I left work early that day because it was Friday. Yeah, that's right. that's how you do it in West Michigan when you have Beer City USA. Yeah. That's Fair how enough. That works. So okay. yeah, I just kept looking at the, the headline, going Cameron may, Cameron may no really, and then I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to think because honestly, I kind of lost track of Cameron Maybin a long, long time ago. Uh, I, I mean, we'll probably pick up this topic a little bit later and talk about what this means for the Tigers outfield. But on a scale of like one to ten, you know, a ten being sweet, he's back, you know, awesome, and one being, oh my god, what did we do? Where where do you rate that? I guess I'm kind of at a five, um, you know, as far as Mabin himself, I'm not necessarily tied, uh, to him emotionally. Um, you know, the first I had ever heard of him was the day that he was traded for Miguel Cabrera. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I was perfectly okay with that then and, you know, getting him back for, you know, what seems like another very low cost for the Tigers. I'm perfectly okay with now. Uh, 
yeah, he's always been and forever will be the name that went along with the Miguel Cabrera trade. And honestly, I, I wasn't even sure he was still playing. I wasn't paying attention to what the Atlanta Braves were doing over the last couple of years. So it's like, wait, he's a real person. He exists and he's actually coming back to play in Detroit. Okay. Uh, just looking at some of the stats and yeah, a solid five on that rating. Like, yeah, yeah whatever. Uh, this looks, though, like he's he's struggled with, with some injuries and hasn't really had some full seasons to play. Yeah, he's definitely seen a lot of time on the disabled list over the course of his career. Um, I believe last year, though, he was able to stay healthy long enough to play 141 games. He was banged up a little bit, I want to say, later in the year. Um, but prior to that, he had only played like 105, 110 games over the last two seasons combined. Um, so there have been some definite uh, hiccups with him over the years. I remember, I think it was a couple years ago, he had, he had injured his shoulder diving for a ball in spring training or something like that and missed, you know, a few months and wasn't, you know, really wasn't right for most of the season, even when he did play. Um, so if the Tigers can somehow keep him healthy, that will definitely be good. And it'll be interesting to see exactly how he progresses, you know, if he stays healthy, because in 2015, he was hitting very well in the first half. Um, he had an OPS, I'm looking at it right now, of 774 in the first half, uh, which, you know, if you're getting that out of a corner outfielder who can actually play some defense, that's pretty darn good. Yeah, it wasn't 2015 the year that he had a scratched cornea or something like that? Yeah, I don't know necessarily know exactly how that happened. But, how do you um, scratch a cornea unless you're smoking a cigarette in the car with the windows down and you get ash blowback? Or, what the hell? The, what? I don't know, but if you ever looked at his injury history, it's it's like I was looking at it on my computer. It's too big to screenshot. It takes up more than the entire screen. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm not necessarily surprised. He's like, yeah. It's just in, just not injury prone, but maybe accident prone. He's I, like I baseball's like. Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> like one of the three stooges. Oh, my goodness. Well, I guess that does kind of raise the question, though, is... Are these freakish accidents, things like diving for a ball, you know, you hurt your shoulder, that's that's explainable. Or, or is he really maybe injury prone? I think there are just too many things over the course of his career, too many issues he's had not call him injury prone at this point. Um, you know, at some point, the luck is going to even out. Um, so maybe he does stay healthy for the next couple of seasons. Um, or maybe he's just the guy that you expect is going to miss a month or six weeks at some point, at least during the season. Uh, you know, if the Tigers can at least avoid kind of the season long injury, uh, you know, get, you know, if he's out for six weeks and then he's back, that's okay. You know, you deal with that. Um, but if they can avoid, you know, something that, you know, kind of stays with him throughout the season or causes them to miss significant time, then they'll be in good shape. And like I said, we'll come back to that topic a little bit and revisit it a little more in depth in terms of what that means big picture for the Tigers outfield. Uh, but for now, let's move on to this subject of the fact that the Tigers have uh, added some prospects to their 40-man roster, of course, with the deadlines looming and them trying to protect, uh, protect certain players from the Rule 5 draft. Uh, they added in particular uh, Michael Fulmer, Luis Sessa, Jairo Laborde, and Montreal Robertson. Um, surprised by any of those choices i'd probably not fulmer so much but montreal robertson got added to the 40-man roster yeah that was definitely the head scratcher of the four um you know you figured that uh fulmer sessa and labor all needed to be protected and they would be you know the tigers had the 40-man roster space to do so uh you'll probably see fulmer and maybe even sessa at some point in 2016 hopefully um in detroit yeah i think that sessa will you know sessa already spent about half the season in 
Triple A last year, and Fulmer is their top prospect who absolutely dominated Double A this year. So it's definitely possible that we see them at some point. Uh, I know the Tigers have you know kind of made a little bit of noise about potentially using them in a bullpen role. So we'll see exactly what they have in mind there. Um, I like that Alavila is leaving no stone unturned as far as that goes in fixing the bullpen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be kind of an interesting little storyline to follow uh, throughout spring training. And yet, in in keeping Montreal Robertson and insisting on protecting him from the Rule 5 draft by adding him to the 40-man roster, they passed up Josh Turley, who was another name that's been kind of thrown around, a, another prospect pitcher. Uh, any thoughts on, on why Robertson and not Turley? Well, I think that just pure velocity and natural talent has something to do with it. Um, Robertson is a reliever, a right-handed reliever who you know can hit 96, 97, 98 miles an hour on the radar gun. Uh, you know, he has a slider that isn't very good, but, you know, some scouts have said that it flashes, you know, some decent potential. And if he can kind of hone, you know, both those pitches as well as his command, which he has really struggled with, you know, the Tigers might have something here. Is that necessarily worth protecting in the Rule 5 draft? You know, the Tigers seem to think so. Um, they've made some head-scratching moves before, although that's also under a different regime. Although even, you know, even this new regime picked up Josh Wilson uh, again, <laughs> towards the end of the towards the end of the season, so we're not entirely sure um, what they want to do there. But I think there's some value in trying to protect the assets you do have. Um, and the Tigers, you know, seem to think that someone's going to take a, a run at Robertson, who did pitch well in the Arizona Fall League, by all accounts. Um, yeah, but as maybe. but as for as for Turley. Um, you know, this is a guy, a left-hander who, you know, throws 87, 88, kind of a soft-tossing lefty. He had some good numbers in double-A this year, but wasn't, you know, overly dominant. Um, you know, I think the reason that a lot of people are high on him is because he throws a knuckleball as one of his off-speed pitches. Um, and, you know, uh, everything that I've read, I know that Chris Crawford of Baseball Prospectus has least released his uh, top 10 Tigers prospects list already. Um, and said that, you know, Turley is kind of an interesting guy to watch, but the knuckleball is really the only pitch that may play at the major league level. So, you know, I don't necessarily know if teams are going to take a chance on him just for that. Yeah, and looking at the numbers spread, it, it, it becomes even more of a head-scratcher to me, just looking purely at the numbers. Uh, not taking into account, like you mentioned, that one of these guys is a starter and one's a reliever, because that certainly would have some, I think, effect on who they want to protect and who they don't. But just purely by the numbers, Turley has has better numbers than Robertson almost completely across the board. Um, the only one that, that doesn't is his FIP. Uh, Robertson has a FIP of 3.55 and Turley's is 3.75. But, you know, if you want to look at anything else, his whip, Turley's whip is better than Robertson. Um, Robertson has a higher strikeout per nine rate at 7.7 than Turley's 6.1. But if, when you mix in the, the walk rates, it kind of washes out. Because Robertson has a, a walk per nine rate that's double Josh Turley's at four and a half. So, in uh, uh, Robertson's whip at one point four four one, it's just it's, yeah, I don't know another reliever that throws hard but can't hit his spots. <laughs> Worth protecting, I guess. I don't know. I think the only numbers the Tigers are looking at here are ninety eight versus eighty eight. <laughs> <laughs> well, that could be. I so, thought and, I thought we had moved beyond that regime, though. Well, I think that there's some value in that. I mean, you want to get a guy that you know has the natural talent there. Maybe he's not 
you know, quite formed yet. Uh, you know, Robertson was kind of a project coming out of college from what I've read. Um, so if they can, you know, mold him into anything, he could be pretty good. And if not, then maybe you cut bait with him later on. Um, you know, the Tigers are really only putting him on here for, you know, the next month or so, so that he gets through the Rule 5 draft. And then, you know, if things change, things change. Yeah, I can't say much about Robertson beyond that. I, I did watch him pitch in the uh, Fall League Championship game on Saturday, I think it was. He faced a couple of batters. That's not enough to form an opinion on. I saw some definite heat, uh, but I also saw some command issues. And he did throw the slider a couple times. It looks like it had a, a, a lot of break to it, uh, so that's promising. But he also left it up in the zone quite a bit as well. And I thought, ooh, that's not what you want to see. But, you know. It's uh, these guys are still developing, so you hope that maybe the Tigers pitching staff can get that stuff under control. Maybe he does become, uh, you know, a contributor in the Tigers bullpen, or maybe he's just trade bait. I don't, I don't really know. Speaking of the Rule Five draft, uh, the names are out. the The available draftees, I guess. Um, I didn't recognize a single name on that list. Honestly, do you see anybody there the Tigers might pick up? Nope. All right then. Move, moving on to. Housekeeping. The Tigers have also announced. <laughs> We're just going to leave it at that, aren't we? Nope. Okay. I mean, the the guys on that list. Um, you know, you have some outfielders that sound a lot like you know some of the guys in the Tiger system already. They have some relievers on there that sound a lot like Montreal Robertson and some of the other guys in there already. I think there was one guy on that list that I sent you that you know his entire profile was like throws really hard but can't hit the strike zone and his breaking ball needs work i was like you know what you change the name that is montreal robertson so you know the tigers already have that in their system and they can shuttle these guys between the majors and minors doesn't seem to make much sense to try to add a guy who you know they can't move between the majors and minors although you know maybe they do go after someone i'm not sure but i haven't seen anyone that i'm like yeah go get that guy the only one that maybe a little bit stood out was this name, uh, Teoscar Hernandez from the Astros. And the, the the report here on MLB says Hernandez is a tool shed. That's that's not a nice thing to say about somebody. Jeez. Is a tool shed with an exciting power-speed combination, albeit an unfinished one who needs to work on his approach. I mean, yeah, anytime you get somebody saying lots of tools, outfielder, that I mean, that's kind of exciting for now, but I'm not sure that the Tigers are going to be in need of outfielders, you know, by the time this guy comes around. I don't I don't know. Nobody else hey, in this. Grabbing an Astros outfielder worked once. Hey, there you go. And power is the key word there, so go get him, I guess. Maybe. Anyhow. Uh we were starting to say the other announcements that came out this week had to do with the front office. Some scouts have been added to the system, a couple of nerds. The nerd brigade is back and <laughs> they have added some more uh analysts and um Legendary Lloyd is back, managing for the Toledo Mudhens. So yeah, um, I was excited about that. That's cool to see. That's about all you can really say about that, I guess. Well, I hope that you know you've seen you know some of the YouTube videos of minor league managers pulling these stunts, and you know they kind of tend to things take things a little bit more overboard because it's the minor leagues, and you know you're trying to entertain the fans. So hopefully we get you know Lloyd McClendon base stealing Lloyd. Redux here. <laughs> that would be nice. Like taking the bases with him off the field. Yeah. Well, I, I don't. So some people were kind of speculating that, um, you know, adding Lloyd McClendon to the uh, Toledo Mudhens as their manager maybe was kind of a signal that they're prepared to push him up to the management role with the Tigers if things go south with Brad Osmus. I'm I'm not seeing that. 
No, um, because I think that, you know, if the Tigers were thinking about that, Gene Lamont is already there. You know, this is a guy that uh, finished as a finalist for the Red Sox job just a couple years ago. I think that was he, you know, second to John Farrell when he was hired. I remember that, you know, Lamont was in the running for that job and we were all like, yeah, go take him, take him, Boston. <laughs> um, so I I don't necessarily think that adding Lloyd is putting any any pressure underneath, you know, or any more pressure on Brad Osmus than he already has on him. Gene Lamont just gets no respect, does he? I mean, none whatsoever. He really doesn't. Poor guy. <laughs> and you talk about, like, we've said on the show that we have really no idea what a pitching coach does. I have even less idea what a bench coach does. Sits on the bench? I, I guess. It watches. Gets the, the sunflower seeds? I, <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm not sure if Lamont is awake half the time those games are going on, so I have no idea what he's doing. Oh boy, yeah, okay. I think that should just about do it for our rounding the bases segment. When we come back with warming in the pen, we'll talk about the fact that the Marlins are a merry-go-round of madness. More on that after the break. Here's the two-two. It's in the fly ball, right field, deep and down the line, and gone. And welcome back to our warming in the pen segment. Things are happening here in Major League Baseball uh, with other teams outside of Detroit. The Tigers finally made a couple of moves in the trades that we just discussed in the previous segment. Uh, But the big headliners for this past week, Rob, the Blue Jays trading Liam Hendricks to the Oakland A's in exchange for Jesse Chavez. What do you think about that? I mean, I was kind of joking when I put that in the in the notes with the yes. you know all caps headline blockbuster, blockbuster trades. The stove is um, so hot right now; it's awesome. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was a pretty good trade for the A's. You know, I think Chavez only has one year of club control remaining, whereas Hendricks, who put up you know some decent numbers for the Blue Jays, uh, has three or four. Uh, so you know, it was kind of another you know savvy little move for them to move a starter that they didn't necessarily need anymore after signing Rich Hill. Uh, and, you know, getting a guy who's going to be in their system for a few years. So definitely doesn't take away from trading Josh Donaldson for absolutely nothing last offseason. Good job, Billy Bean. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's a it's a nice little move for them. And the Jays got a guy that's going to help them in 2016. That's kind of a, a win-win move for both teams. Sure. But when you start to kind of add up the the math across the board, you have the, the Blue Jays adding Chavez. You have them re-signing Marco Estrada and uh, Marcus Stroman coming back. Now, that, that was one thing that was lacking for the Jays in 2015. They had plenty of offense. We, we saw that from the beginning. What they needed was pitching, and that's why they went out and got David Price at the trade deadline. Now that they've added another starter, that seems to maybe take them out of the running for picking up David Price. I mean, you can weigh in on that, but then the, the other question is, have they, have they really strengthened the pitching rotation enough to be a contender in 2016? Well, I definitely don't think that they've strengthened their rotation enough to do that. Um, you know, the, I think they still have R.A. Dickey under contract for another another season as well. Um, so they have, you know, what is that, four starters that we're counting now? Um, so they could still use kind of that top of the rotation arm. Um, Stroman's making the major league minimum, and none of these other guys are making too much, although Dickey is making $12 million, But the other guys really aren't making much. Um, it's just, you know, that that rotation right now you have stroman but it's like stroman and three number four starters um so i think they could definitely use another arm 
whether that's going to be David Price and you know showering him with two hundred million, or you know someone maybe slightly below that, maybe they look towards Jordan Zimmerman, a guy who keeps the ball on the ground quite a bit and tries to limit home runs. You know that would play well in the AL East, but you know it's it's tough to see them going you know going big for a, a Price or a Grinky. Yeah, and it's always interesting to me at the end of a season when you kind of total up all of the teams that made it into the postseason and start to figure, you know, how many of these teams are going to be back, you know, in 2016 and be legitimate threats. And the Blue Jays are obviously in the top of that list for me, um, just because they do have such a strong offense. They they will just club you to death. But like I said, pitching was such a big weakness for them right up until the trading deadline. It's uh I don't know. It remains to be seen for me, I guess, if they can put it together and come back in 2016 and and uh, maybe get another shot at that World Series. Elsewhere in MLB, let's talk about the merry-go-round of madness that is the uh, Miami Marlins. Uh, well, a couple things happened here. <laughs> First, there was the, the rumor, not rumor, that uh, the club might be willing to trade Jose Fernandez. And I'm not really sure if that's... Uh, if that's legitimate or not, some sources that were closer to the team said, no, absolutely not. Um, but then there was the other rumor coming out that they might be willing to deal Marcelo Zuna. And so there's just like all this rumor dust is everywhere. And a lot of it seems to be surrounding just how unhappy these players are with the Marlins system and with the owner in particular. Yeah, Ozuna in particular has kind of had, uh, I don't know, I don't know if you want to say words with Jeffrey Loria, but I think the quote was that Loria, quote, can't stand the guy in regards to Ozuna. Um, so, you know, it's tough to say who's really at fault here. I don't necessarily know if being disliked by Jeffrey Loria is exactly a character flaw, but at the same time, I think Marcelo Ozuna did equate being sent to the minors uh, with going to jail. Mm-hmm. So that's not exactly the rosiest comparison um, and, you know, not exactly the the best thing to say about the guy's character. Um but he did struggle a little bit in, in 2015 when he was sent down. Um, a lot of, you know, Marlins, uh, you know, Marlins writers and everything that I had kind of seen were puzzled by the move, even though he was struggling a little bit offensively. Um, but this is a guy that put up, you know, almost four wins, I want to say, in 2014. Um, so he's putting up, you know, some pretty huge numbers. He hit 23 home runs that season. Um and, you know, it really kind of finished strong in 2015 as well when he came back from the minor leagues. Um, you know, being a 25-year-old outfielder with uh, four years of club control remaining, um, that you know, that's pretty huge. And I don't necessarily know that he would come at much of a discount with so many teams kind of interested in him. Um, but it's definitely puzzling as to why they would put him on the market. Yeah, and it strikes me as, I don't know, it doesn't have the ring of truth to it that they would put him on the market. I, I'm not really sure. I, I remember in the middle of the 2015 season, it seems like there was, when they first sent him down to the minors, uh, there was some scuttlebutt there about his teammates being unhappy that he'd been sent down and some uh, some talk, I guess, that, that he the real reason why he was left in the minors for so long is so that they could keep him from acquiring enough service time to become arbitration eligible. They were trying to keep their costs down, and the, I I know I can't remember where I even read it. Might have even been on the SB Nation's uh, Marlins site, you know, where where the team was basically saying, "Hey, we've got a guy that could contribute this year that could be, you know, a run production machine, and they won't bring him up to the majors because they're trying to control costs." But if that's the case, if there's any truth to that, uh, then it doesn't seem that that you would go from there to saying, "Yeah, they want to get rid of him." They're they're obviously trying to keep him under control. 
I guess so. Um, he hits arbitration after the 2016 season, so maybe they'll start to look at that then. Um, you know, there are just so many bad things going down down with down in Miami and with Jeffrey Loria that you know it would be nice if you know the baseball could just really kind of figure out a way to get rid of this guy. Is there any chance the Tigers get in on this and make a move to try and pick up Marcelo Zuna? I mean, maybe, you know, we've seen the Tigers kind of ransack the Marlins farm system multiple <laughs> times before. Um, I do know that they got, a, you know, a decent little first baseman out of the Marlins once upon a time. Um, so hopefully, you know, history can repeat itself, but I wouldn't necessarily put money on it. Yeah, I, I look back at that trade now, the Miguel Cabrera that you just referenced, and, you know, it, I, that's such a big part of Dave Dombrowski's legacy, and you go, that's, you know, Trader Dave. That was the defining move. He got Miguel Cabrera away from the Marlins for practically nothing. And the more I think about it, I go, well, yeah, maybe that's partly Dave being a wizard at trading, but maybe that's just this merry-go-round of madness and the players, their good players are just flying off this thing at a just ridiculous rate. I mean, maybe they're an easy club to um, kind of pickpocket that way. And if that's the case, great. Go get Marcelo Zuna. We could use the, the outfield help. You know who's not showing up in a lot of rumors right now? Johnny Cueto. So uh, what's what's the story there? Why is he like out of the party right now? It's really interesting that he's gotten absolutely no play whatsoever. I mean, you've heard rumors about you know David Price and Zach Greinke. I think that the Dodgers were interested in Price or Jordan Zimmerman or someone, and the Giants are looking towards Zach Greinke. Um, but we've heard you know next to nothing about Johnny Cueto. I mean, I think the only team that has even been rumored to you know kind of be interested in him is the Diamondbacks which just seems very, yeah, random. Um, but, you know, other than that, we really haven't heard a peep. Uh, I think that, you know, his, you know, kind of rickety postseason had a little something to do with it. He was good, then bad, then amazing, then bad again. Um, so that'll be interesting to see if that has any impact on the contract he gets. That along with um, kind of this whole elbow issue that has plagued him throughout the 2015 season i don't know if it necessarily caused him to miss any time uh, i seem to remember that he made you know pretty much every start the team asked him to uh but you know it was it definitely kind of one of those things that teams were worried about when he was traded uh in the middle of the year um and you know kind of something that you know when he struggled I, I believe it was he was struggling a little bit before the trade deadline and, you know, people were saying, oh, is is his elbow acting up? Is he hurt? And then he goes out and I think threw a no-hitter. Um, and then, <laughs> right. and, and then you know, people kind of shut up about that. And then he was traded and, you know, things kind of went from there. Yeah, I, I, he's, uh, he's Johnny Cueto, right? I mean, you don't, you don't say too many things about him that aren't, I mean, you don't worry about Johnny Cueto, I don't think. And yet at the same time, uh, he's been kind of ping-pongy in the last, I don't know, a year or so. So it's a, it's of minimal interest to me, honestly, because I don't see the Tigers being in any way involved with Johnny Cueto. I certainly don't think the Royals are going to make a move to get him back. Um, honestly, I see him kind of disappearing into the fog of the National League where he's not really our problem. Uh, but some other names that were thrown around last week, names, uh, players that have been released by their respective teams, we saw Rex Brothers, John Axford, and uh, Daniel Nava. Any of those names interesting to you? I think Rex Brothers is interesting. Um, you know, he's a lefty who could throw 95. Uh, he was kind of the one that jumped off the page, I mean, before. I believe his ERA was in like the 175 range in 2013, uh, but has definitely struggled since then and was, I want to say, above, above five 
uh, at one point in you know in 2014 he was above five, and then 2015 he only had a handful of innings there, uh, where his walk rate was actually higher than his strikeout rate, which is not a good sign going forward. Um, but it was still a little bit of a surprising move to see the to see the Rockies, excuse me, cut him loose. So you know you you definitely will get teams thinking that they can kind of repair this guy. Um, but at the same time, looking at some of his numbers from 2014, you know who they remind me of? No. Ian Kroll. <laughs> Stop it. So, you know, it's a guy that you can, you know, throw hard from the left side. And, you know, it, part of me, you know, thinks, oh, yeah, we could, you know, make, get him be- get him healthy, get him right, and, you know, turn him loose on the, on the American League, kind of like he did in 2013. Uh, but if he struggles, then you have another Kroll on your staff, and that's kind of what you're trying to get rid of already right i don't think that's something you want to put on your baseball resume per se numbers best compared to ian kroll all right we'll we'll call you then honestly i was more interested in the fact that daniel nava has has been uh, dfa'd uh just because i i see a lot of tigers fans saying hey we really need a left-handed bat and the outfield seems the best place to put that because they're in need of some outfield upgrades as well. Daniel Nava actually hits, um, you know, switch hitter, but he he does uh, mash on righties pretty good. And his contract, uh, let's see here, he made about $2 million last year. So you're looking at a guy who's relatively cheap, might provide that power from the left-handed side of the plate if you really kind of think that's important. But is that some a direction the Tigers are going to go? I don't necessarily think it is, and I don't necessarily know if they should. Um, you know, outside of Nava's excellent 2013 season with the Red Sox, he hasn't done a ton. Um, he did all right in 2014. He hit 270 with a 346 on base percentage, uh, and that on base percentage definitely looks nice. You know, considering the kind of lack of a, a true quote unquote on base guy in the lineup right now, um, but at the same time, it's you know a little concerning is how much he dropped off. This past year, you know, he hit 194 last year. It was a very Alex Avila-like line. He hit 194 with a 315 on base percentage, but there was absolutely no power to speak of either. And I don't think that he's good enough defensively. Uh, You know, he's kind of played all over the diamond, but I don't think he's good enough defensively to make up for, you know, a, a powerless bat who, you know, draws enough walks, but doesn't hit well enough to necessarily sustain that. Yeah, it would have to be almost a strict kind of a platoon situation. Just looking at his career splits versus righties, he can't hit lefties to save his life. Uh, but versus righties in his career, he's got a 787 OPS uh, and an on-base percentage of 377. So that maybe, if you really need, you know, kind of a platoon partner in left field for Cameron Maben, I guess I don't know, or just you want some bench decision. I I don't know, but. Uh, to, to see a guy uh, go on the DFA list like that, you immediately kind of go, huh, maybe, maybe that guy could help, maybe not. So, yes, no, maybe. I I don't know. I'd probably hold off for now and just kind of see what the Tigers do during the winter meetings. All right, fair enough. And that should just about do it for our warming in the pen segment. We'll take a quick break, come back with the high and tight segment, get a little more into this outfield question, because the Tigers aren't done upgrading the outfield, right? Right? We'll find out when we come back. The 3-2. a fly ball. Center field. This one's deep. Going back. Borges at the warning track. Looking up. And it's gone. A home run. Amazing. How about it? First chance to hit 400. And Miguel Cabrera delivers in his first at-bat of the day. 
And welcome back. We are into the high and tight segment. Let's talk a little bit further, Rob. We've kind of danced around the subject about the Tigers outfield. We talked about the fact that they've added Cameron Mabin. We've talked about the possibility of maybe, maybe not going to get someone like Daniel Nava. Uh, Tony Paul tweeted recently that the Tigers will shift focus, quote, almost exclusively to pitching after this point. That certainly seems like uh, he's saying the Tigers are done messing around with the outfield. Uh, do you think that's true or are they, are they going to upgrade a little further? I don't necessarily know if it's true, um, but it definitely sounds like their focus right now is shifted toward the pitching. Um, you know, based on the couple of trades they made so far, it seems like the Tigers are kind of taking a, you know, get what comes to you approach. Um, you know, the Tigers may be kind of initiating these trades, but at the same time, it seems like they really kind of have their their line in the sand drawn, so to speak. Um, you know, and if they can make a move that, you know, upgrades the you know, a roster in a certain way, then they'll make that move. And if not, uh, they won't. I don't necessarily know that this outfield is kind of the end game and we may see more changes made. Uh, I think I said on the site that, you know, your off-season plans need to be, uh, you need to be very flexible and you need to, you know, not necessarily say, okay, we need to fill these roles and this, this, and this and get these players and then we're done. Um, I think you need to kind of take a very open-minded approach and look at the roster as a whole and say, you know, will this move upgrade the roster as it stands right now? And then, you know, kind of address any holes that you ha- create or or still have after the fact. Yeah, it seems like we, we've covered this in, in previous shows, and I've certainly, you know, preached the gospel of run creation stats, you know, to, to anybody that would listen. And the fact that I think the Tigers really do need to do something in the outfield uh, to replace the run production that they lost in Yohannes Cespedes. It was just an abysmal second half of 2015 once he was gone. Um, but like you said, I'm not sure that that's the end game. I'm not sure that's even the most important part. Um, you know, it's it's going to take some serious run prevention, which you will add by, you know, starting pitching, relief pitching, defenders, uh, you know, this sort of thing. I, I guess the, the question is, with Cameron Mabin coming into the mix, uh, and he's looking at his stats, his run creation numbers, he's maybe... 10, 10 runs better than, than Tyler Collins. So it's not like this huge uh, uh, infusion of run creation by adding him, but he does bring a certain defensive component. He definitely does. Um, you know, it's interesting that you kind of bring up the run, runs created and runs prevented stat. Um, you know, a lot of people have kind of taken to looking at the acquisition of Mabin as, oh, they're trying to find a left fielder. They're trying to find a platoon partner for Anthony Ghost. Uh, and they're kind of taking this antiquated approach and looking at it as, you know, they're, the Tigers are trying to fill a certain role on the roster. Whereas I think the Tigers in this new regime, you know, with such a focus on sabermetrics, they're not looking at roles at all. They're looking at maybe not as an outfielder or a left fielder or a center fielder. They're looking at him as a number. And that number tells them how many runs they expect to score, how many runs they expect to prevent. Uh, and that's kind of what they're going to be basing their entire you know, kind of their entire roster construction, maybe even some lineup construction on. Um, and that, you know, you get a guy like Mabin and, you know, maybe, you know, he's the righty-lefty splits don't necessarily make sense, but, you know, maybe he hits better against a certain pitcher. Maybe he plays center field because Anthony Ghost can't hit some guy's curveball. Maybe he plays left field because Tyler Collins doesn't see the ball well during the day or something like that. Um, you know, I kind of look at it as this is our money ball. Um, the Tigers are kind of entering this, you know, the era that the that the Oakland A's went through a decade ago where, you know, they're kind of taking this conventional wisdom of these 
of these player roles and turning it on its head. And they're not necessarily looking at it as, oh, we need, you know, X, Y, and Z. They're looking at it as, you know, an equation. And they need to, you know, find the find the right pieces to fill that and kind of meet their end number more so than to meet their end roster. It's encouraging to think that that's what they're doing. And at the same time, uh, hearing you talk like that and saying he's really a, he just he's a number in the system and it's kind of all towards this total of runs created and runs prevented and so forth really kind of makes me nervous considering, again, the, the Brad Osmus component, because especially, let me, let me put it this way, you can get around Brad Osmus in certain ways, like by building a really, really good bullpen that he can't possibly screw up, even if he tried. It's a little different to me if you're talking about adding a very particularly specifically shaped puzzle piece like Cameron Maben and saying he's got to be put in the right spots uh, to make that number work and then leaving it to someone like Brad Osmus to know when to plug him in and when not to plug him in. It just it evokes that, you know, that scene from Moneyball where, where the Billy Bean character goes to the manager and says, it doesn't work if you don't play the team the way I designed them to be played. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see exactly what the Tigers do with that. I know that Al Avila has said, I'm not going to tell Brad Osmus, you know, who to set in his lineup. Um, but at the same time, you know, they they may present Osmus with the data that says, you know, this guy should play this day or this guy should play in this situation and that type of thing. Um, I think that managers, you know, managers go beyond just kind of the X's and O's of it and that they need to know, you know, what guys are feeling well, what guys are playing well, you know, what guy, you know, had bad sushi the night before and things like that. Um, so there are a lot more, you know, there's a lot more of the human element, I think, that goes into it than a lot of people ascribe to, you know, a manager's decisions. So I think that that part of it may may kind of be up to Osmus, but I think that the front office is going to have a little bit more of a role in kind of educating, and I don't know, we're going to kind of talk about this a little bit later, um, but in educating Osmus and kind of, you know, taking the data that they find and presenting it to him in a usable way. Right, because if like what you're talking about is true and it, you want to play Mabin precisely and carefully in certain spots and platoon him with, say, it's going to be Tyler Collins, you know, we'll be partnering with him, just for example. Uh, you need to pick those spots very carefully and you cannot, I think, approach that just simply from the, the very rudimentary aspect of, well, Mabin's a righty, so I'll use him in you know certain matchups and Collins is a lefty, so I'll use him in the opposite matchups and leave it at that. Yeah, I think it definitely comes down to kind of breaking some of those thought processes from Brad Osmus's mind. Um, whether they're able to do that in an offseason, we'll see. Uh, so it it does make me tread a little bit lightly there, and I would like to see another outfield acquisition of some sort. Um, but at the same time, I think that there's more than meets the eye to more than meets the eye to what the Tigers have done so far. We must break Osmus somehow. He, his his mentality must be broken. We'll see if he sticks around long enough for that to actually happen. Uh, you touched on, I think, the follow-up topic there. Um, and Adam, I'm kind of seeing this out of uh, the Tiger fan base in different places around the internet and so forth. And uh, some, some fans are already, they're ready to pre-wet their pants uh, and assume that the outfield is done. It's set. That's it. That's all we're getting. And they're already unhappy about it because we need more than this. Uh, do you really think it's set and if it's not then what kind of player the tiger is going after i don't necessarily think it's set um if anything you know if we are looking at it this is a like strictly righty lefty type thing the tigers may be looking for actually another guy that hits lefty as well but we've already pointed out that you know maven has reverse splits um and he hits righties a little bit better than lefties um 
but you know, in a situation where the Tigers are facing a lefty, you know, they have an outfield. You know, Mabin may be playing center field. J.D. Martinez is obviously in right, but then you don't have a left fielder that hits lefties well. Uh, both Tyler Collins and Anthony Ghost are left-handed, and their platoon splits are pretty awful. Um, so maybe you go get a, you know, God forbid I say this, Ryan Rayburn type who can play left field on certain days or another guy who may fill a more versatile role. Um, I love that I'm making you squirm with this. Yeah, it's, I want to run that back and I want you to say it again. I want you to say, well, you're the editor <laughs> that, that they're going to get Ryan Rayburn. I said someone like Ryan Rayburn. Okay. No, but not Rayburn himself. Yeah. I mean, the, the defensive antics would make for some great gifts on the website. Because, yeah, we were just talking about the need for run prevention, and that's, uh, I'm pretty sure Rayburn is the anti-run prevention. <laughs> Here, let me take that fly ball and knock it over the fence for you. Ha-ha, <laughs> there's an extra run. Well, maybe they go get a guy like Steve Pierce, um, you know, a guy who can play a little bit infield. You know, let's say Miguel Cabrera or Victor Martinez end up banged up at some point in the year. He can play a little bit outfield. Um, this is a guy who has a little bit of upside as well. I believe he, you know, really kind of tore the cover off the ball in 2014 before falling back to earth in 2015. Um, so, you know, maybe the Tigers don't necessarily view him as an outfielder per se, but he's played some corner outfield in the past. And if he heats up, that's a guy that you absolutely have to stick out there every day too. So, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see what they do, but I don't necessarily think they're done. I just don't know if it's going to be a pure outfielder. Well, I'll, I guess I'll go on record and say that I wouldn't be necessarily happy if they were, in fact, done, but I wouldn't also be surprised if this was it uh, in terms of the outfield. They do have a limited budget to work with at this point. Uh, they still have not addressed the two major holes in the starting rotation. They still haven't, I don't think, fixed the bullpen just yet. So there's other places that they need to work on, and I I don't know. I guess I'm surprised, I guess, that with the way that the Alavili has gone about this thus far, and this maybe is something else we can kind of talk about, that... A couple weeks back, he went on MLB Network and went on the Hot Stove program and said, hey, we've got a uh, target list of players we want to acquire, whether by free agent signings or by trade acquisitions. And then he added, but most of these we're going to go after in in free agent signings. And I kind of took him at his word, you know, for that and saying, yeah, that makes sense because they don't really have a lot of trade pieces that I think they want to move around. So what are you going to do but sign free agents? And yet we turn around and two moves that have been made, acquiring K-Rod and now Cameron Mabin, have both come about by trades. He, uh, Alavila, got uh, got the best of me on this because it's actually kind of a cool strategy, it seems like he's following, that I didn't even think of, which seems to be, let's target the couple of teams in, say, the Brewers and the Braves that are clearly in a rebuild process. Let's go target those teams and see if they're willing to offload some players on the cheap. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe the the heads down and say, hey, what do you want for a Rolls Chapman? Uh, although it sounds like they already did that. Um, I just really kind of salivate as I thought of a Rolls Chapman coming out of our bullpen in the ninth inning, because right. that would be great, because he literally breathes fire. Um, <laughs> but as for the strategy so far, I think I'm more concerned, I mean, not concerned, I'm more encouraged about the, the fact that the Tigers have only spent, um, I want to say about $12 million towards next season's payroll um, and they've already acquired a pretty good reliever as well as you know potentially fix their outfield um, or at least you know address their outfield Um, and they still have you know a good 30 million or so maybe 35 depending on what they do with Neftali Feliz to address just the starting pitching in the bullpen Um, and with you know some of the names on the market and you could get you know if you think about it maybe two starters and a reliever 
for that. You can get a, uh, you know, a pretty good starter and two relievers for that. So the Tigers still have some money to play with, and hey, maybe they'll make another day to surprise us too. And I guess that was kind of my point, is that I, I didn't see Alavila going to the trade market as often as he already has with these two moves. I really thought he was going to stick to the sign-a-free-agent plan, but now that we see he's willing to do a little bit of wheeling and dealing with trades... Um, that makes it a lot more difficult for me personally to even speculate as to what kind of an outfielder who they might get. Because now we're talking about not just a list of free agents that you can kind of work down and go, okay, there's the cost, there's the stats, you know, makes sense, doesn't make sense. Now you kind of kind of go, all right, everybody's up for grabs. Who might they possibly want to trade for? What teams might they get involved with? So I guess that's me saying they might be done. I wouldn't be terribly surprised if they are done fixing the outfield. Uh, if they aren't, I haven't got the foggiest clue who they would even be looking at, who they would have in mind. So unless Al is ready to share his target list with us, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. I'll tell you what I what I told Patrick O'Kennedy, though, when he asked if I liked the Maven move, and I said, I, I'm jury's out on the Maven move, honestly. Um, it see, really... here's, here's one thing that I like about the Maven move. Um, you look at a guy in Austin Jackson, who a lot of people kind of wanted to bring back, um, you know, potentially as a platoon type bat, potentially as a left fielder. Um, this is a guy that's projected to probably get three years, ten million per year, so about thirty million total on the free agent market this year. Um, no qualifying offer attached to his name, so there's no draft pick. Um, but in Mabin, you have a guy who, over the last two years, has put up almost identical numbers. I mean, I think they're within like two points of OPS of each other, which is you know absolutely nothing. Um, and, you know, they're going to be paying maybe, and I want to say it's like $16 million over the next two years if they pick up his option. And so you're basically getting the same player for half of that, and you don't have the long-term commitment. So, you know, if Maven doesn't play well this year, they can pay him a million dollars and tell him to go away. Um, but if he does play well, you know, you've got a guy who you can bring back for a fairly cheap salary next season, and then you still go into the 20, 2017 offseason um, you know, with a lot of payroll flexibility, uh, you know, are they going to use this flexibility? You know, a, the, some of the money they have coming off the books in twenty seven after twenty seventeen to pay JD Martinez an extension. Are they going to lock him up? Or are they going to do some other things? I think that Anibal Sanchez comes off the books then too, so they're going to have some money to play with. Maybe they're kind of starting to build towards extending Martinez. Maybe they're you know just got some other things in mind. But I do like that they're not necessarily mortgaging more of the future to add some of these upgrades right now. And I like that you suggested the other day that, that Maven might just be a placeholder because there are some names coming up through the Tigers farm system uh, that could end up filling in in the next year or two. So it does seem to be a nice way to kind of stopgap that for now and say, let's get through 2016, maybe as long as 2017, depending on how he plays. And then there may be set up a little bit better to let someone like, I don't uh, Michael Gerber uh, come up and take over those duties in left field. But as I was, I was starting to say, I'm not, I'm not going to judge the Maven trade until I see what they're doing with the pitching, uh, how much further they're going to build out that bullpen, uh, what they end up do picking for starting rotation, the two guys that they want to pick up. And I liken Cameron Maven to, I don't know, like a, a pre-meal glass of wine, you know, and you can't judge it. It's a red wine. It's a white wine. I don't know. Do I like it? Do I not? It really depends on what you're going to put on the table. It really depends on what they're going to do with the starting pitching in the bullpen as to whether or not I say, great, that Maven move made a lot of sense, or whether I go, what in the hell? That was a stupid thing to do. You didn't really help with the pitching as much as you needed to. Now you really need a left fielder that can hit. So until I see what the rest of the season looks like, uh, I'll have to get back to you in terms of what, what I think of Maven. 
Yeah, I mean, I, on the site, just you know, a couple hours after this trade, I called it a trust the process move, and I think that really kind of speaks to the same thing that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. We got to see, you know, the whole picture here before we really, really judge that move. But you know, as a as a move on its own, you know, I think it makes them better than they were before they made the trade. Uh, you get Ian Grohl out of the way, so hopefully he <laughs> isn't mismanaged anymore. Um, so I think that you know, on its face, it's a win. Um, but you know, depending on what else happens, we'll see how much of a win it really was. I just, I love the, uh, the weirdness of that statement. <laughs> how would you like to be Cameron Maven and know that the fans are saying, you know, the best part about this trade is that, uh, Ian Kroll is gone. <laughs> Not like, yay, Maven's here. It's like, cool. He gets here and we get rid of Ian Kroll. That's the best part about this, man. Thanks a lot, Cameron. Awesome. He looks like a predator. I do like that. Mm, yeah. A little bit. Okay. He's got the dreads. Let's let's go with that. Maven the Predator. And on that note, I think we will wrap up this segment. When we come back from the break, we'll go into the mob scene at home, take some listener questions, and talk about five topics that you might want to bring up at Thanksgiving dinner. Hope you're ready for that after the break. Swing the fly ball left field. Deep going back. Cabrera looking up, and it's gone! A home run! James McCann with the walk. All right, here we go into the mob scene at home. It's the portion of the show where we take our listener questions. Love to interact with you guys. The questions just keep getting better and better. And the uh, quantity is also way up now that we're taking questions on the website. That's one of the ways you can contact us with questions for the show. Just watch for the uh, apparently a regular thing. Now we're going to post a, put a post on the website soliciting your questions. You can leave those there or you can, of course, always reach us on Twitter at HookslideBYB or BYBRob. Also on uh, Gmail, BYBTigers at gmail.com. This week, Rob, we have uh, HaHa Bohangles. I'm kidding. It's it's apparently Jaja Bojangles, and I've been called a barbarian for not knowing that. So I'm surprised it takes people this long to figure out what a barbarian I really am. But anyway, Jaja Bojangles says uh, Darren O'Day is looking for a four-year contract north of thirty million. Is that too much? And if so, who would you rather see the money spent on? I think it is a little bit much given the constraints of their payroll. Um, I think that it's a you know it's a decent deal for a guy like O'Day. Uh, a four-year deal seems like a lot for a reliever, but then you look at his numbers over the last four years, and he's been utterly dominant. Um, so if there's a guy on the market right now, I would want to give a four-year to. It is hands down Darren O'Day. Um, the real question is, you know, if they spend you know upwards of nine or ten million a year on a reliever, where does that leave the rest of their payroll? I mean, you can get maybe one good starter. With the remaining, you know, if they have 30 million and they're spending almost 10 of that on a reliever, you know, 20 million left, you're maybe getting a good starter, maybe one starter and a and a decent bullpen arm. But, you know, at that point, you're relying a lot on getting, um, you know, a lot of innings out of the younger part of your staff. You know, you think Daniel Norris is kind of your number four starter there. And then the number five starter is just this kind of glut of arms that, you know, hopefully turns into something. Um, I know that you're kind of high on Shane Green and think that he'll bounce back nicely. But this is a guy that just had, you know, some sort of shoulder surgery to end the year. uh, And it'll be interesting to see exactly how many innings he throws in 2016. So I just, I just don't think that, you know, given their payroll constraints, I don't necessarily know if O'Day is the right decision to make right now. 
Yeah, and the one thing that scares me off Shane Green, even though I have high, high hopes for him, I'm going to be watching with interest and rooting for him the whole way. Uh, but I do know that the, the pitch that he throws, I guess the one that's the most effective in terms of inducing weak contact and swings and misses is that slider. And I know that that's like the pitch that is the roughest on your on your elbow. And I think, isn't that where he had the surgery? I, I thought it was the elbow, not the shoulder. No, I think the surgery was in his shoulder to remove that like blood clotter or pseudo aneurysm or whatever it was. Okay, you know what um, I'm thinking? It's it's that he had the um, the ulnar nerve issues. Yeah, I mean even then that's you know still something that they, you know whether that was you know all caused by the shoulder or if that was something that was actually going on in the elbow, it's tough to say. So if that really was going on there, then yeah, there are definitely definitely some concerns uh, to go along with that. Yeah, well, knock on wood. I hope that that uh, it doesn't continue to be an issue but getting back to the question about Darren O'Day uh, when you're looking at four years 30 million you break that down to seven and a half million per year and then kind of compare that to who else is sort of out there and available and I'm still very very excited at the prospect of getting uh, an Antonio Bastardo or a Sean Kelly Oliver Perez there's some other names people are talking about Tony Sip I, I haven't looked at what his um, you know projected contract rate would be but uh, any of those other names that I mentioned would be cheaper than uh, than Darren O'Day at this point. And honestly, if they're going to pick up a Darren O'Day for four years, I would want to see them uh, kind of treat him like that ninth inning ace. And it seems like they've already chosen, you know, in that respect with, with K-Rod. So I'm not sure it's uh, worth paying Darren O'Day to pitch, I don't know, seventh inning, eighth inning, or however they're going to end up using him. So that would be my answer. Yeah, it's a little bit rich from my blood for the role he'd probably be given. And I think you can do cheaper, similar you know, options uh, elsewhere. But we're going to go back to Jaja Bojangles, who says uh, double dibbing, because why not? Chris Young or Doug Fister to the Tigers, which one fits better? See, I would pick Chris Young in this scenario. No. I think he's going to be a little bit cheaper than Fister. Um, I think that, you know, he may get a multi-year deal, but that multi-year deal may only be about as much as Fister gets for one year. So it definitely helps alleviate any payroll concerns there. Um, and now with the addition of Mabin, you have you know a pretty rangy outfield out there for them to track down all of those fly balls that Chris Young's going to allow. Mm-hmm. He pitched very well in spacious Kauffman Stadium last year. Uh, you know Comerica Park, well, it kind of plays neutrally to hitters overall. It's not necessarily the most homer-friendly park. Um, so uh, there are a lot of fly balls that go to die, especially out there deep in center field. And I think that Young would play very well there. Um, so I think that, they, you know, this kind of all goes back to the, the off-season plan I detailed out a few episodes ago where, you know, you, you can kind of stock your system with some fly ball pitchers and, you know, play to your park a little bit and have the outfield that, that can kind of go, go run those down. Uh, well, let's and I let's think that, refine that just a bit, though, because, yeah, Chris Young, you said, had some success in Kauffman Stadium, which is similarly spacious like Comerica Park. But there, there's rangy outfielders, and then there's the freaking Royals. And they're not really close. I don't think the Tigers outfield right now. Yeah, you've got Ghost, Mabin, J.D. Martinez just won some kind of award. It wasn't the gold glove, but he he won some kind of defensive award. Um, is that an, an outfield that's that's going to play as well as, you know, is it going to play well enough um, to, to host Chris Young? I think it will. Um, you know, Young is a guy, he's not allowing warning track shots. A lot of the time, this is a guy that gets a lot of lazy fly balls. He gets a lot of pop-ups because he's, you know, a very tall right-hander who is throwing downhill at a lot of these guys and working up in the strike zone. He's been very tough to hit uh, all throughout his career. Um, You know, looking at his career numbers right now, 
hitters uh, opposing hitters hit 202 off him last season uh, in just 224 against him throughout his entire career. He's going to have a very low batting average on balls in play. His career BABIP is 250, and that's over you know almost uh, I want to say almost five or almost 2,000 innings of work. Hmm. Yeah, or just over 1,200 innings of work. Excuse me, but still, that's a long time to have a, a BABIP that low, and it just speaks to the kind of weak contact that he generates. And I think that that would play very well at Comerica. I would cast my vote for Doug Fister, and I know that's not a, necessarily a popular opinion. Um, yeah, the new, improved, rangy outfield might be enough to, to suit a Chris Young, uh, but I think they've already got the middle infield in Jose Iglesias and Ian Kinsler uh, to better host a Doug Fister, who's who's your ground ball type. And I know there's, you know, the, the stats get kind of funky. Uh, he had a good 2014, but then a weird 2015, and... I think the ground ball rate went the wrong direction, but I, I still think he, what is his, uh, his projected contract somewhere around 10 million. I think it is. You're talking yeah. about a starting pitcher who is eminently affordable. And I really think he would excel coming back to Comerica park, having some solid defense behind him on the ground. Uh, I, I think that would be a great move. See, the big thing with me with Fister right now, isn't necessarily so much the ground ball rate. I think that the defense definitely would play well behind him having you know ian kinsler and jose iglesias behind him would be far better than anything he had when he was here before uh, i'm just concerned about those injuries you know he had some elbow troubles he's been on the shelf over the last couple of years uh he's only thrown like 250 innings over the last two years combined um you know it's you know a fair amount but still it, the the injuries just kind of concern me and he's you know starting to get kind of towards the end of his prime years i, ju- I just don't know about that well, I guess to tie a ribbon on that, I, I would say uh, it sounds like either one of these guys would be a nice fit, uh, all injury concerns aside. Um, so honestly, Chris Young or Doug Fister, uh, I think it's kind of a cool place to be to say, hey, we've got the outfield that could handle Chris Young. We've got the infield that could handle Doug Fister. We haven't been able to say anything near to that in, in, in a long time, um, you know, for many years. I think was... any... I think any pitcher that's not Alfredo Simon is going to be a better fit than when we had in 2015. So, right. you know, he allows fly balls, he allows ground balls. As long as he's not allowing, you know, line drive rockets off the wall, I think that he's a great fit. <laughs> because that's, Alfredo Simon was great at that, wasn't he? Woo, another rocket. All right, that's how you take care of base runners, man. You clear the base paths. Mr. Sunshine asks, which free agent with a qualifying offer do you think signs last? And I'm going to tell you right up front, I did not prepare for this question. I don't even know who's on that list. Well, we talked a little bit last week about Ian Kennedy, um, mm-hmm. who was kind of, you know, a little bit of a mystery getting qualifying offer. Uh, he hasn't pitched very well. I think his last above average season in terms of ERA plus was in 2012. And he was at 101, which is just barely above league average uh and his last like legitimately good season was back in 2011 when he was still pitching for the diamondbacks uh, this is a guy that's allowed a lot of home runs over the course of his career and he has some nice you know some nice strikeout numbers a decent strikeout to walk ratio but at the same time he just hasn't been able to really put it together um you know he eats a lot of innings uh and and is a pitcher you know i don't think he's necessarily gonna go the way of kendris morales and stephen drew who went into the season and I think it was 2013 where they just went completely unsigned for a while um and because kennedy's a pitcher and because he eats innings i think someone's still going to sign him i hope it's not the tigers but i think he will so i guess in a roundabout way my answer to this question is going to be ian desmond 
for the Nationals, the shortstop there, um, because I don't think there are that many teams that need a shortstop. Uh, the only team that's really been linked to Desmond so far is the Mets, and I think they're kind of looking at his numbers and going, eh, look at what you did in 2015. We don't know if we want to spend you know, $100 million on that. Right, right. Well, if I can expand the question, I can offer a different kind of answer, because it's kind of a fun um, sort of you know guessing proposition for me. You remember when Max Scherzer was on the market, and the winter meetings came, and they went, and he didn't do anything and the months rolled by and it was like, wow, is anyone actually going to pick up Max Scherzer? And he was kind of the last big headliner, you know, free agent to finally sign. Uh, I've been kind of kicking around in my head, the question of who do I think is, who's going to be the Max Scherzer this year? When you have someone like David Price, who's on the market, you have a Zach Greinke on the market, you got a Johnny Cueto on the market, which pitcher is it going to be? Who's going to be that guy who just holds out and it's not till, you know, January that we finally have the big headline. He's finally signed. I think it'll be Price. Um, you know, he's a guy that's fielding a lot of offers right now. He kind of made fun of the whole process on Twitter the other day. Um, and I think believe that he, he joked that he was going to Japan yes. at one point. So it seems like he's really kind of not anywhere close to making a decision and just kind of enjoying the offseason so far, not necessarily getting too involved in everything yet. Um, so I think that it's going to be a while before he signs. And I think that, you know, with some of these big name free agents, you tend to see them wait a little bit longer. Um, you know, whether that's just Scott Boris is doing or, or what have you is tough to say. But I think that, you know, these big money guys aren't necessarily going to be signing at the beginning of December. Yeah, I would have picked David Price as that person as well, although it may very well be Johnny Cueto. There was kind of a similar situation, it seems like, last year with John Lester, you know, and everyone's like, where's Lester going to go? And it, it seems like it took a long time for him to get signed. That I was joking on Twitter last year that, you know, nobody cares anymore. Like it reached a point where... People were more interested in Max Scherzer or whoever. So we were just talking about how, how Johnny Cueto seems to have been forgotten, and he's not the subject of any kind of rumors or anything like that. So we'll, we'll see if he ends up being the one to be the final holdout. Uh, next question from Colors You Have. And that's a reference to uh, that group love song, isn't it? That's a great song. Sorry, distractions there. Uh, Colors You Have uh, asks, how awful would it be if Avila's big starting pitcher acquisition this offseason is Jeff Samarja. Rank this on a scale of the fist trade to keeping Brad Osmus in 2016. Uh, I'm having trouble converting that to actual numbers because that's like a negative 10 to a negative 18. Yeah, I was a little puzzled by that scale too. Um, I think that there's a lot of kind of distaste for Samarja and you know I'm trying to figure out figuring out exactly why people hate this guy so much he only spent one year with the White Sox so I don't think it's necessarily you know something to do with that you've had guys that like Chris Sale and you know Jose Quintana that have been there for much longer who haven't worked up so much hate um, I, I wonder if it's almost you know from his past history at Notre Dame uh, you know playing football there it's a, a team that a lot of people don't like a school that a lot of people don't like um, you know, maybe between that and his whole, you know, quote unquote football mentality when he's on the mound, it tends to rub people the wrong way. Um, cause you don't see people getting that upset about a guy like Ian Kennedy who sucks a lot more than Jeff Samarja does. Um, right. so, I mean, guys have, you know, people have been saying Alfredo Simon would be okay to have back Alfredo freaking Simon. Um, so, you know, it, it's really kind of surprising to me that Samarja has worked up this much dislike in such a short, short time. Uh, yeah, I, I guess if I had to think about it, 
I, I have this kind of sinking feeling that that might be who they end up picking up. And I don't know why I feel that way. It's just one of those gut feelings. So it probably means nothing. Um, how awful would it be if they picked up Samarja? I, I don't know, really. I he's he's had some rough years he's had some good years it's it's just kind of he's a mixed bag i get it um but i don't know what with with the amount of uh payroll that the tigers are working with right now if he fits the budget who knows i i'm trusting that al avila and his new um posse of number crunchers you know are are looking at all the possibilities and finding value where others aren't. So if they did pick up Jeff Samarja, I mean, I, I would probably want to trust the process, I guess, and say, well, we'll see. We'll see how it how it all shakes out. So I'm not sure how I would rank that on a scale of Fister trade to keeping Brad Osmus because those are all negative numbers, man. I can't work in that scale. Now let's have some fun. Now that we've gotten the listener questions out of the way, I had this little idea today, since we are about 24 hours away from Thanksgiving, at least by the time this podcast drops on Wednesday, and uh, it occurred to me, Rob, that, um, you know, there's different levels of, of fan obsession, and if, if, if you are a regular reader of Bless You Boys, you are already kind of in that group of fans that are just way too obsessed with the Detroit Tigers. You're, you're, you're reading online blog content about the team in the off season. You're crazy. However, there is also a subgroup of that, that you listen to these podcasts. You're, you're even crazier than the people that just read the site. And then there's like a top level of not only are you reading, listening to the podcasts, but you're actually generating content for the site, which would be you and me, Rob. We are like the, the, the ultimate level of obsessed fans. We we want Tiger's content so badly, we will write it ourselves just so we have something to read. If you fit into any of these three categories, chances are your family knows it. Your family knows that you are a freaking Tiger's fanatic. And when that, uh, when that tends to happen and you get together for Thanksgiving or Christmas or even the 4th of July... You're the guy that old Uncle Mort comes over to and says, hey, you've got the inside track. Why don't you tell me a little bit about this Tigers team? And you get hit with all these questions. So to prepare you for the the eventual uh, conversations that are going to take place over Thanksgiving dinner this year, and I know you're you're coming back to visit family yourself, Rob, so you might actually hear some of these questions. So, oh, I'll hear a ton of them. Here it comes. <laughs> I was telling uh, I was telling the rest of the staff in the chat room, I'm like, people do this to me. They know I write for a Tigers site. And I'm just like, why, if you know I write for the site, why don't you just read my stuff? And then you would know all of eh, Whatever. Question number one from old Uncle Mort. What do you think about Al Avila so far? See, the, the key with these questions isn't necessarily to try to answer it in any rational way, especially <laughs> around Thanksgiving. Um, you know, this time of year, people don't want to know, you know, what – you know, what the Tigers are doing in their front office and hiring all these, you know, uh, sabermetric analysts and, mm-hmm. you know, scouts and everything. They just want sunshine. So you really just kind of kind of <laughs> blow smoke up their ass. Well, and um, the other thing is you do not have recourse to uh, OPS plus and weighted yeah. runs created plus. Uncle Mort doesn't give a crap about that. He wants to hear RBIs, home runs and, and batting average. So mm-hmm. good luck. So you just got to tell Uncle Mort that Al Avila is the truth. And that Dave Dombrowski was the whole problem with his team, and that <laughs> the the Tigers are going to win the World Series next year because they're going to make all of these all these savvy moves that are gonna that are gonna pan out. Well, the, but the follow up is, you know, the first thing he did is he kept Brad Osmus. That's not a good sign. 
Well, you you got to tell them that the you know the alternative to that was Ron Gardenhire, a guy who you know wears his underpants around the clubhouse oh. and <laughs> and Moore still wears loves Ron Gardenhire. Uncle Mort does love Ron Gardenhire, but you could, you just got to tell him that he's you know kind of just a bad Santa, and that <laughs> yeah, this is a guy that the Tigers don't necessarily want around, and that Brad Osmus is learning; he's going to get better, and that that's really the only way to. I mean, you know, look at how bad I am at selling that one. Wow, that that's so, not good. That's a that's right? a swing and a that, miss right there. That that is a swing and a miss. <laughs> I, I don't know how to. The only to alternative man was was Ron Gardenhire. You have to make up a rumor. Is what you have right. to do. Say, well, they couldn't get Garden hired because I, I heard he's got some uh, outstanding parking tickets or something. So, just probably not a good move there, Uncle Mort. So, question number two: The Tigers are going to re-sign Yuanis Cespedes, right? Absolutely. There's there's <laughs> no way they let Cespedes walk. What the? They gotta hell? they get they gotta pay whatever whatever they need to. Did you see how he carried the Mets to the World Series there? <laughs> You are gonna lie through your teeth, aren't you? You gotta, you gotta lie to your teeth through your teeth through these people. <laughs> oh my god! And you gotta answer them abruptly so you can go back to eating more food. Right, right. And and before so you, you embark on any of these questions and answers, I strongly recommend that you implement a very good pre-drinking game. See, you gotta, you gotta go with that too, because you know Uncle Mort isn't coming to to you at eleven a.m. He's not coming to you stone cold sober here. Ew. He's he's thrown a few back already and you got you got to be ready to match that you got to be ready to match that. this is this is lie. this is strategy here this is a this is a game plan you know the lions aren't the only ones playing ball on thanksgiving day you got to be ready that's right that's right crack open a couple of cold ones get them down fast and then you are ready to lie through your teeth about the fact that the tigers are going to apparently sign you in as cespedes i did not expect this approach so this this is okay question number three how do you like the tigers chances in 2016 Oh, they're they're shoe-ins for the World Series. The Royals are done. Come uh, they on. lost Alex Gordon. They lost they lost Johnny Cueto. No, no, see this is just gonna cause a fight at Thanksgiving if you say that, because Uncle Mort believes the Tigers are done for. They got a rookie GM, they kept that <laughs> Brad Asswipe as the manager. There's no way this team is competing again until twenty twenty. See, at the same time, we're we're coming from different different perspectives here. Your uncle Mort is kind of a miserable git, whereas <laughs> I'm going to be answering these questions from my grandma, who yeah. is the sweetest woman in the world, bar none, and she just wants to hear sunshine and rainbows. Okay, so the Tigers are definitely going to win the World Series. In yeah, they're either done or they're going to win the World Series. There's absolutely no middle ground. Nope, nope. It's not going to be a third place finish. You got to read the situation. Good point. Good point. There's a lot more strategy to this than I than I realized. Question number four: They fixed that damn bullpen yet? You gotta you gotta tell them nope that you know teams aren't doing teams aren't doing much yet because everyone's too busy getting fat off of Thanksgiving turkey themselves. That's that's the only one you can actually kind of tell the truth on. Really? I was gonna sell. K-Rod. Well, they haven't done anything yet. I was I mean, gonna sell you know, K Rod high, high, high on that. They, oh, they yeah. gotta, you got to sell K Rod high, but other than that, I mean, you know, it takes more than K Rod to fix this bullpen. Come on. Well, I mean, as long as we're like slathering bullshit like it's butter on toast and telling them we're gonna get you on a cesspitus back, you might as well go the full hog and say, yeah, a K Rod is gonna be the answer to all the bullpen problems. I mean, you can't put that much lipstick on this pig. <laughs> I don't know about that. And question number five, how are the Tigers going to win anything with Brad Osmus still managing? You already asked that question. Well, it was you, we kind of went there with an answer. I didn't expect you to. <laughs> I don't know. 
The, the Tigers are just going to awesome-proof the roster. They're going to re-sign you on Cespedes. They're going <laughs> to fix the bullpen. Uh, you know, they're going to bring back David Price, too. Mike Gillett is, is going for it. He's going for it, it all. <laughs> I he love it. He championship. <laughs> I am thoroughly impressed I, with all of those answers. See, you got to answer all these questions first. Then you got to pretend you're asleep for a little bit. And Uncle yep. Mortal kind of go back to drinking and eventually fall asleep himself. And your fail-safe in any one of these situations is, of course, to just divert the whole discussion back to the Detroit Lions because there I think everybody is happy just bitching and moaning for the rest of the day. And then you can... See, and by that point, if you've talked for 10 minutes, odds are the Lions have already done something stupid. Right. So you can just point to that. I like that approach. I like it a lot. This involves pre-drinking, middle drinking, and post-drinking, and then just kind of divert to the Lions if if at all possible. And a lot of food. Man, I'm going to have to set the bar higher. I'm going to have to see if I can actually sell the Ioannis Cespedes re-signing to somebody. At, I feel like I should family. wear a GoPro for this. Yeah, definitely. Excellent job. All right. That is going to do it for the end of the mob scene uh, segment. Um, don't actually use any of these answers in real life. You'll you'll get in far more trouble than, than you think. When we come back from the break, we will wrap the show up with the seventh inning Kvetch and talk about bringing big data to Detroit. That's after the break. Three now. Here's the 2-2. Oh, boy. Curveball grabbed the outside corner. Victor not happy. Pitch that he felt went around the plate. You rarely see Victor complain. Red Osmus better get out there quickly. Oh, and Victor got tossed. And welcome back from the break. We are into the final segment, the seventh inning Kvetch, uh, talking about bringing big data to Detroit and whether Brad Osmus can be coerced, persuaded, in any other way uh, convinced to start embracing sabermetrics. And kind of the, the backstory to this whole question, Rob, is that I just finished reading uh, Big Data Baseball, the story about the, the uh, 2013 Pittsburgh Pirates and how they ended a 20-year losing streak by doing precisely that. They implemented big data, uh, primarily in the form of uh, excessive defensive shifting, but also in some other ways they uh, uh, began to understand and and spot the value of pitch framing, and that led them to pick up uh, Russell Martin, who was a free agent that nobody wanted. He was he was kind of an Al Avila at the time, guy hitting in his uh, you know low 200s batting average. Nobody wanted him. But they thought that they could uh, get a deal on him and, and do some serious run prevention with his pitch framing. They also had their starting pitchers kind of change their approach, start throwing more uh, two-seam fastballs, sinking fastballs, and try to get more ground balls to play into the shift, which I thought was interesting because that sounded a lot like what you were talking about, uh, just in terms of matching your pitching staff to what you're planning to do with, with defense. Uh, the whole story, though, I thought was, of course, I'm reading this, Rob, and I'm always, always, always trying to apply it back to the Tigers and say, could I see them kind of accomplishing the same thing? Uh, so the, the the story was cool that the Pirates did, in fact, end their 20-game losing streak. They've been to the playoffs. What's that been now? Has it been three years in a row, I think? 2013, they were in it. Three wild card games in a row, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you can't hold the St. Louis Cardinals against them. They, they just can't get past the Cardinals to actually take a division title, but they're, they're back in the game. Um, let's start with this. Just the fact that um, Clint Hurdle was the manager. I was seeing a lot of similarities between him and Brad Osmus in, in a couple ways that, first of all, an old school manager, the old school manager's old school manager, uh, not really a guy who's going to be open to sabermetrics per se. 
uh, but also a manager who at the time felt like his job was on the line. And I think Osmus is maybe in that same kind of situation. Um, he's certainly in the last year of his contract and probably wondering if they'll you know, re-up the ante for him after 2016. I think that might create the environment of desperation for a manager where he says, okay, I'll try anything. It definitely could. Um, you know, uh, Al Avila had kind of mentioned during that whole little dugout press conference when he announced that Osmus was coming back that the there had been kind of a uh, an evaluation process with him where he you know he was talking to the team, he was talking to Osmus, and kind of getting a feel for what they wanted for next year. And you wonder kind of what those conversations were like, and you know maybe Avila kind of pitched to him like, hey, we're going to do you know X, Y, and Z that's different from what we were doing last year um and maybe osmus kind of bought into some of that stuff then maybe they're still just kind of trying to ram it down his throat uh it's tough to say exactly what what the whole you know thought process of that was but uh you you gotta like your odds of at least kind of persuading him a little bit and you know maybe even kind of dangling it over his head like saying you know if you do these maybe we'll you know and if we see progress with this maybe we'll re-up you going forward yeah, it's it's possible. Like I said, I think it's a nice um, little you know motivator to have to say you're in the last year of your contract. And certainly for Clint Hurdle, that was the case. You know, twenty years of losing. Not that he was responsible for all of those, but there was definitely the expectation you have to get us a winning season, or you know we're going to move on. The difference is that Clint Hurdle spent some time prior to managing the Pirates, spent some time working for MLB Network. This was such a funny thing to read to me that. His colleagues at MLB Network actually introduced him to Fangraphs.com. So he spent some time surfing Fangraphs and wanting to find statistics and numbers to back up some of the theories that he wanted to talk about in different on-air segments. And he describes it as kind of a process of like going down the rabbit hole, or I think he compared it to going to the Wizard of Oz, basically, and saying, once you get started down this, you can't stop. He was kind of prepped before this whole kind of... uh, experiment with the pirates you know he was prepped in getting some um exposure to sabermetrics i guess what i'm getting at in that though is that watching clint hurdle manage for those years with the pirates i'm not sure you would have ever known that about him just because a guy is maybe getting exposed to the metrics behind the scenes may not show itself on on the field so at this point how can you even say uh you know what brad osmus has been exposed to or not or what he's open to or not well, I think he's definitely been exposed to more now than, you know, Hurdle would have been at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking, what, three, four, five years ago? I mean, look just look at how far some of this has come in the last three, four, or five years. You know, the Tigers have been kind of at the back end of this whole revolution, but at the same time, so much of this data is publicly available now that wasn't necessarily available at that time frame when Hurdle was, you know, just kind of finding his way to Fangra and all that, that... I think that there's just there's more exposure to it now, and I think that you know Osmus's baseline level is probably higher than what Hurdles would have been to start with. Yeah, I'm not sure how what I think about the the um, kind of concept of saying, well, it's been around for so long, therefore they have to be exposed to it because that was the case with the Pirates. You think about the fact that the Indians were kind of the first team to really start messing around with the advanced metrics and hiring analysts, you know, from outside of baseball. Uh, in fact future Pirates GM uh, Neil Huntington was one of those guys that worked for the Indians along with uh, Paul DePodesta and some other guys. Uh, Mark Shapiro was another one. 
so this this data had been out there. Um, the whole thing with the Oakland A's happened in Moneyball in the early 2000s. So uh, teams were catching on. The Tampa Bay Rays caught on in the mid-2000s, mid to late 2000s. You get all the way up to 2012, 2013. You know, by this point, there's just no excuse for not knowing about the metrics that are available. And yet the Pittsburgh Pirates had nothing when they began to build their analytics team. They had to build a system from scratch. They, I mean, they literally had nothing coming in. So I, I'm almost kind of feeling like, um, you know, especially with some of the things Dave Dombrowski said a few months ago at the Boston press conference when they asked him, you know, about his experience exposure to sabermetrics and he he said well yeah we you know we had people in detroit that could get you the information you wanted and i thought man that is a politician's way of saying i've never touched this stuff um i kind of wonder if the tigers are in the same place you know where where they're hiring all these guys precisely because they don't have a system in place they're gonna have to start building from scratch yeah i mean they had one what one guy before one. that maybe 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 two um uh, and now they're kind of hiring a whole team of of super nerds here. Um, I know that a couple of the guys on Twitter are you know just absolutely kind of amazing to follow because some of the stuff they post is is incredible. I mean these are not you know baseball people like you and me, people that like looking at fan graphs and looking at the numbers. These are statistics nerds. Period. Yes. Um, so, so it's it's kind of interesting to see you know the the type of people they're they're hiring and and I think it's great. That they're really they're really finally embracing this because, um, as you said, it seems like the Tigers were definitely not uh, they were kind of you know at the rear of the pack. I know that ESPN kind of ranked their I think it was the top thirty teams as far as um, as far as the use of analytics, and I think the Tigers were just ahead of the Phillies, who were dead last. So that's definitely not good, and you'd like to think they have, you know, an inside source or two that kind of tells them, you know, just how much they're using. Um, but having an actual analytics department now is a good is definitely a good thing. Uh, it's definitely not the Houston Astros, who I believe, I think I read a story that they actually had to like physically remodel the front office, like office space, um, there because their analytics team had grown so much. Wow. So. So, you know, yeah, I mean, having a few guys is definitely not, you know, an army like Houston has. But at the same time, uh, it's it's nice to have, you know, more than one mind running this stuff at this point. The thing that was kind of really encouraging to me in terms of relating this back to Brad Osmus and the Tigers is that, to, look, to get big data onto the playing field, it's not as easy as you might think. It's not as easy as Al Avila, you know, calling up Sam Menzen and saying, here, get me reams and reams of data, and I'm going to walk it down there and hand it to Brad Osmus and say, now this is how you do this. End of story. There is kind of a chain of command, and there is this whole, you know, people managing component of this that the way the Pirates did it is that Neil Huntington, their GM, um, you know, came alongside Clint Hurdle and said, we've got to do something. We don't have a ton of money to spend. We've got to break this 20 a 20 year losing streak basically i want to explore some of these ideas and radical defensive shifting and it's going to take you know time to implement and i need your support and basically what clint hurdle did was first of all he embraced the concept but then he turned around and acted as a a very strong support uh, front united front with huntington in terms of relating it back to the to players you know and saying this is what we want to do here's why the other thing that i thought was really cool is that they actually got the analytics guys involved in the clubhouse. Like, on a regular basis, the guys were down there with their, uh, not statistics, they were creating visuals, basically, charts and graphs and things to make it a more visual thing. That's, I guess, how baseball players learn better. Um, so they would have these, you know, whole 
group meetings with the analysts and, you know, the GM and the manager and the players and kind of going over all this stuff. And they were very open to saying, challenge us on this. If you think these numbers are wrong, if you think we're all wet, then we want to hear why. And and they would. Like, the players would say, like, okay, if we shift everybody to the right side of the infield, how is that not going to result in guys just dropping down bunts? And they had to go back and rerun the data and come back and, you know, refine it. Point of all of that is is that Clint Hurdle played a role in being the, I don't know what you would call the, the salesman, I guess, um, being the bridge between the front office and the players, being able to communicate the information to the players and make them feel comfortable in embracing it. Everything we've heard about Brad Osmus in 2015, the main reasons why I think he's coming back is because the players liked him. Can he be that guy? Can he be the soft hand communicator? You you definitely hope so. Um, you know, we haven't had any indication of that so far. Um, but so this is really kind of taking a leap of faith um, as to whether Auspice can be that bridge for the players or, or what exactly the, the team is going to do. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be Auspice, although it definitely seems like that's kind of the best way to kind of channel um, what the run office is doing and getting that to the players in a way that they're going to understand and accept. Um so it'll be interesting to see exactly what they do. Uh, but, you know, at this point, we really haven't had anything to go on. And we'll definitely hope that changes. I guess I'm just thinking that if he is, you know, he had so much support, it seems, from the players at the time when it was announced that he was coming back. And, you know, you had guys like Ian Kinsler saying, yeah, you know, the, the team supports him. The players support him. He's got their vote. It would seem like he would be the ideal candidate if he can be convinced to embrace some of the, the more metrics-oriented decisions. I'm trying to think, though, now, what does this mean? Let's let's go ahead and speculate. What does this mean for Detroit uh, in terms of embracing big data? I think it's got to go beyond just make the right bullpen decisions. Do you think you see the Tigers starting to um, defensive shift alignments, You know, using that a little more? Um, lineup construction. How do you see that playing out maybe in your wildest fantasies? If they fully embraced the sabermetric revolution, what would you see? I don't necessarily know that we're going to see that many changes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the Tigers haven't shifted as much as most teams have, but based on the the data we've seen so far, they've been one of the more effective teams at, you know, getting outs with a shift and reducing, reducing hits, reducing, you know, batting averages with the shift. Um, so whatever they're doing so far has definitely worked. Uh, I don't necessarily know that they need to change much with that, although I haven't really taken a look at the 2015 numbers, so it'll be tough to say, but I think that they were, like on a per-shift basis, I think they were actually the best team in baseball in 2014 at uh, preventing preventing runs, preventing hits, uh, and whatnot. Um, so I don't necessarily know that we're going to see any sort of change with with this as far as you know, the on-field stuff as far as, you know, defensive shifts and whatnot. Um, what I'm uh, interested in is that the Tigers have also beefed up the scouting department, too. Uh, they're not relying just on analytics. I think that they're definitely trying to blend blend the two, you know, schools of thought here. Um, and I think that, you know, the whole scouts versus analysts thing has definitely been overblown, especially at this day and age, that I think that both sides recognize the value that you need to have both, and you can't just rely on one to to get your point across and to get the the right data in in place um so i think that the analytics uh team is going to do more with not only the data that they have as far as what uh, our own players are doing and whatnot but you know taking some of this 
you know, some of this data from advanced scouting and whatnot and putting that to usable way as well. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, if they have a little bit better, you know, kind of intel on posing pitchers or hitters or whatnot and, and just kind of how that turns into maybe not necessarily shifting or anything that we see in that regard, but just overall, you know, better performance. Yeah, the the visible, tangible results may not be, you know, as as striking, like you said. You may not see things on the field like the shifting. Um, another visible, tangible thing would be, like I said, if they radically changed the lineup construction and you start seeing Miguel Cabrera batting second or something like that, then it would be an obvious sign that, wow, they're doing something different. But I tend to agree that, I, look, data permeates and kind of impacts so many different areas that you don't see things like we're going to sign a Russell Martin because he's got crazy good pitch framing skills and we think he can add a bunch of defensive runs saved and that translates to extra wins. I don't think anybody in the Pirates fan base got that. There wasn't an announcement that, you know, hey, we're using sabermetrics to figure this out. That kind of stuff, I think, is going to play out in things like signing Cameron Mabin. Who knows what they saw in some, you know, random chunk of the data wheel that made them think this is the way we want to do this uh but there are other areas that 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 the data can impact um you know what they're doing and one of the areas that i wanted to mention to you we've talked about this on the show before has to do with uh, injury prevention and when billy bean talked about that with bill james a few weeks back and you and i discussed it a little bit i wasn't even thinking at the time um it comes out a little more in the big data baseball book they talk a little more um specifically about this that they're doing even simple things like using pitch fx data just to keep track of pitchers release points and velocity and they're charting that stuff and looking for any significant changes as a way of saying if those numbers dip if you start seeing a pitcher is releasing the ball at a different spot it might be time to step in and say is there is there an injury that's about to happen does that make sense yeah um injury analytics are definitely kind of the forefront of you know baseball analysis at this point uh yeah one thing i was just looking up now is that the washington nationals uh you know a week or two ago announced that they were kind of overhauling their entire medical system uh, within the organization they had you know so many injuries last year and so many guys spent time on the disabled list that this you know kind of juggernaut of a roster was never able to really get going mm-hmm. uh you know they had you know all their guys healthy you know for you know just games at a time it seemed um and by the end of the season you know they're looking up at the new york mets and then you know all this other you know extracurricular stuff is happening um but if they can kind of get out in the forefront and helping to prevent some of these injuries or at least you know doing as well as some of the other teams in baseball we're doing you know that's a team that can go from you know you know 88 wins to 98 wins in a heartbeat so i think that that's definitely kind of one of the one of the big things going forward is just uh what can teams do to prevent injuries and keep their guys in the field because i think that that's going to be kind of the next big money ball so to speak yeah, and I guess it hadn't occurred to me when we talked about it last time. I was more envisioning, you know, super sci-fi type stuff like, you know, chambers and, and nodules being attached and things like that. But really, it can be something as simple as just watching the pitch FX data and saying, wow, his release point really changed. I wonder if he's struggling with a, some soreness in the shoulder or whatever. Um, the, the book really kind of pointed back to and said it's not the pirates that invented this or even made you know, exploited it. It was actually the Tampa Bay Rays in the mid to late 2000s that really got a jump on this. And I, I can't recall the stat that they quoted. You know, Stan Conti is the guy who said that um, 50% of starting pitchers will suffer an injury any given year. 
and the Tampa Bay Rays kind of jumped out in front of that, and they ended up having one of the healthiest pitching staffs from, I, I think the years was like 2005 to 2009. They only had, I think, one pitcher miss significant time to injury. So it's teams are getting on board with this. The book did talk to about uh, some of the advancing technology and the fact that they have um, things like compression sleeves now. They're able to measure and record certain data from the body. Do you think the Tigers are, are into this yet um, beyond simple things like pitch counts? Uh, do you think they're beginning to utilize some of this at all? It's tough to say. Um, you know, this is really kind of a thing that goes way, way, way beyond beyond the scenes. Um, part of it has to do with medical records just being confidential mm-hmm. in general. I know that teams release, you know, some injury data saying, oh, you know, he's got a, a calf strain. He's going to be out for a little while, that type of thing. Um, but we don't hear about a lot of these injuries. You know, I mean, it seems like every year, you know, you hear at the end of the season that, you know, four or five guys are banged up and they've dealt with, you know, such and such throughout the entire season. Um, so it's one of those things that I don't know if we're ever really going to get a lot of information on. Um, I think that statistics in general, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, teams have access to all this data that isn't publicly available. Mm-hmm. You know, there's hit FX that isn't publicly available. I mean, all the stat cast data, we're only getting, you know, just a sliver of the pie with that. Um, and as far as injury prevention and, and whatnot, um, you know, I get exposed to, you know, the, the occasional thing, but even in, in my setting, I'm not necessarily with, you know, I'm definitely not with a sports team that has, you know, all this money to spend hmm. on all these new, new things. You know, I'm not with a, you know, kind of a, a bigger, a bigger company that, you know, is, is spending some money on some of this stuff. So even I'm kind of in the dark on, on what exactly teams are using some of the latest equipment and whatnot to, to help their, their athletes rehab and to stay healthy to begin with. Um, so it's, you know, as far as determining whether the Tigers are, uh, you know, leading in this regard or behind, you know, it's really anyone's guess. Nobody knows. Well, I know Al Avila said that he felt like they were really behind you know, a lot of other teams, they needed to play catch up. And so that I guess bodes well, you know, for us, I think if they are indeed going to really advance, uh, you hope that situations like with Anibal Sanchez, you know, just this ongoing shoulder problem, maybe they can get out in front of that finally. And maybe he can be, Al Avila said it a couple of weeks ago, he, he believes Sanchez can be a real strong uh, piece for the Tigers, you know, in 2016. So who knows, maybe, maybe Avila knows something that, you know, that we don't. Uh, I guess the final kind of facet of this that I wanted to talk about is just the way that the, the with as much data as is coming in, and, and you talked just a minute ago about how StatCast is now a factor in TrackMan and how they're measuring things like spin rates now. And there's another goofy little sidebar for you that uh, the Dodgers started to kind of go more this sabermetric direction too in 2015. And suddenly, guess what? You had a guy like Don Mattingly going in, in, in front of the press and talking about spin rates, for crying out loud. I mean, talk about old dogs learning new tricks. There, I think there is hope for Brad Osmus here, but um, they're talking about billions of points of data now at this point. And you kind of go, wow, it's it's always going to be shifting because as soon as one team figures out something, like the Pirates figured out defensive shifting and they exploited it to the nth degree, won a bunch of games because of it, and guess what happened? Everybody copycatted it. Everybody went that direction and started saying, yeah, we want to do, you know, we want to find ground ball pitchers. That's the next big thing and start shifting our defense to match the ground ball pitchers. The Oakland A's, of course, who are always trying to stay one step ahead, they countered that by saying, yeah, now we're going to stock up on fly ball hitters because, as you said recently, you know, in a, in a, in a 
matchup between a ground ball pitcher and a fly ball hitter, who wins? The fly ball hitter. Pretty much. Every- it's kind of a, like an opposites thing. Like a, if you have a fly ball pitcher and a ground ball hitter, I don't know if that necessarily happens as much, but hmm. you know, some of these kind of strikeout pitcher, you know, guys that are going for a lot of strikeouts. I guess we kind of saw that in the World Series where, you know, you have the Mets who, you know, kind of this high octane pitching staff who gets a lot of strikeouts, but they also allow, you know, a fair amount of fly balls. I think that, you know, strikeouts and fly balls are kind of one of those things that go go together, um, you know, based on what we've seen. Uh, and then you get a, you know, a team that's kind of slap happy and just looking to put the ball in play that they're going to exploit that a little bit. Um, whereas, you know, you get, you know, a team in ground ball, uh, a team of ground ball pitchers, they're going to really struggle against more of a fly ball hitting team. Hmm. I guess the, the whole th- exercise for me just kind of reinforced the idea that, hey, just because a team discovers some, you know, uh, market inefficiency and then they, they capitalize on it doesn't mean that it's too late for the teams to get on board because it's a copycat game. Yeah. But there's always going to be this kind of cat and mouse. You know what I'm saying? Like, fine, we're going to stock up on ground ball pitchers. We'll counter that by, you know, sending a bunch of fly ball hitters. I think there, there's always going to be this kind of competition, you know, in saying, fine, you go that direction. We're going to find a different set of data that, that you know, we can counter that move with. And so it's, it is exciting to me that the Tigers are finally in the conversation, that they're finally going to be playing hardball with, with some of these other teams like the Oakland A's and the Tampa Bay Rays and whoever else you want to throw in there. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think that the Tigers, um, you know, kind of we kind of have a luxury here in Mike Illich in that he's spending a good amount of money in this payroll and we don't necessarily need to resort to, you know, being this extreme data driven team that we don't need to, you know, find the next money ball or the next, you know, big market inefficiency like some of these other teams have. You know, they just need to catch up to the pack um, like the Yankees have, like the Dodgers have. And once they get there, you know, they can use, still use some of that financial might to, to you know, acquire some of the great players that they have and then, you know, to kind of fill in the rest with some of the, da- the data that they have. Yeah, they're not a Moneyball team. And yet at the same time, as I pointed out in the post that I put up on this subject, they kind of are in the same situation. The, the Pittsburgh Pirates in 2013 had a pretty low payroll. They weren't going to buy their way out of that 20-year losing streak. The Tigers have more money to spend, and at the same time, when you look at how much of that payroll is already spoken for in Cabrera, Verlander, et cetera, et cetera, they do kind of have to play a bit of money ball. How do you turn $35 million into two starting pitchers and maybe two more relievers and hopefully fix the outfield if you're not going to play money ball? Well, I think they do need to do that this offseason and kind of you know trying to find that that magic number uh, as far as making sure that the payroll is still under the luxury tax there. Um, but I kind of go back to, you know, the Tigers beefing up their scouting. They're beefing up, you know, the pro scouting as well as the amateur side of everything. And it seems like Alavila is buying into the fact that I think teams these days need to, you know, to be successful for long term, you need to build from within. You The days of just buying all your free agents and whatnot are over and that you need to have, you know, a baseline level of talent within your system at all times to stay competitive over the years. I mean, the, you know, the St. Louis Cardinals have done it for what going on 20 years now. Right. Um, you know, and that's a, you know, just a factory basically that, you know, every time someone gets hurt, they churn out two more guys that, you know, <laughs> you're like, where the hell do they get all these people? Um, and so I think, you know, they may not necessarily need to be that sort of powerhouse, but they need to produce a lot more than what they have so far. And I think that the Alavila's real challenge now isn't necessarily, you know, finding the next market inefficiency or anything, but it's bridging the gap. Um, and then, you know, as he builds up this farm system and creates kind of that base level of talent, what does he do over the next few seasons to keep the team competitive in the meantime? 
Right. I think he's going to have to play that game on multiple fronts, like we said, over the next year or so. Well, he's got a limited budget to work with. He's going to have to play a little bit of Moneyball, but certainly in years to come, as the budget frees itself up, and hopefully they're they're doing more with the scouting and getting good players in, the game changes a little bit. It's just, uh, I, I would not envy Alavila's position right now having to be kind of a jack of all trades no a master of all trades in this in this case so uh and yeah it's it's very good to see that they're increasing their scouting presence because it just seems like even that's a sheer numbers game the more scouts you have out there the the, the less chance of you know some superb talent slipping through the cracks just because you didn't have a guy out there to watch you know this new prospect play so anyhow um I think that's just about going to do it for our Thanksgiving episode of The Voice of the Turtle. Any uh, parting thoughts, Rob, as we close out November? Nope, just looking forward to uh, Thanksgiving week here, as well as uh, a pretty good football game coming up on Saturday. Oh, that's the uh, Michigan-Ohio State. Michigan-Ohio State. Who do you got in that game? Oh, Michigan, of course. I hate to tell you this, but I think the uh, stat-heavy numbers favor Ohio State. They probably do, but I scored a ticket to the game today, so... Seriously? Yes. I will have a hell of a lot of fun. That's going to be... Make sure you post some uh, pictures on Twitter or something to see what what it looks like from the inside. I've actually never been, but that's not a surprise to anybody who knows my past history in hating football, so... All right. Remember, again, we are only one half of the conversation. You are the other half. So leave your comments for us at the website at blessyboys.com. You can also find us on Twitter at hookslidebyb, also bybrob. Send us an email at bybtigers at gmail.com. So on behalf of Robert Jackie and people soon to be in food comas everywhere, this is Hookslide reminding you that turkey is just the awful price we pay for being able to drink a gallon of gravy every year. And we'll see you next time on The Voice of the Turtle. We'll be right back.